ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Well, hello. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. And as ever, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing great. And welcoming back to the show, Solomon. Hey, what's going on, guys? How you doing, buddy? Look, long time no uh, no talk between them. When was the last time you were on, Solomon? I think that, uh, well, I know it was for Starcade 87, and uh, I believe it was last year. Almost around the same time, I think. <laughs> so have you got a particular affinity with Chicago? Because I noticed we're doing another Chicago t- show tonight. <laughs> well, uh, actually, it's funny because my team, the, the Vikings, are playing the Chicago Bears right now in overtime. So it's it's kind of a, I didn't, I didn't think about that till now. <laughs> um, okay, well, shall we get uh, right into the news, Chad? You got anything to... Uh... We should plug the the iTunes feed yet again. Uh, get people used to used to that. Um, yeah, search for web the big boys play in iTunes, and you'll find us. Yeah, and uh, just one more uh, quick plug too. Uh, it's around the holiday time, so if you are buying anything from uh, Amazon.com at placetobenation.com, there's a uh, Amazon banner. That'll take you right into the Amazon website. Uh, so, you know, same process, checking out and everything like that. It just uh, gives us a little kickback to help us pay some bills there. Uh, and that reminds me, actually, um, this year, for the, it's a really weird thing. Like, Black Friday is a big deal in the States, right? It's like yes. a, it's a big sale. But this year, for the first time, it seems to have come over here in a big way. Obviously, like, we don't do Thanksgiving, but Amazon still do their Black Friday sale. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like it hit the news this year. And, like, people are talking about it for the first time I can remember ever. So it's a strange little thing that happened. I know, I know people were, um, like, uh, jockeying in a shop in uh, North Northern Ireland recently. Like, there was a sale on TVs on. And people were, like, really kind of jostling back and forth to get the cheap TVs. So And it made the news. So there we are. It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra. Wrestling Observer Extra. With Dave Meltzer. Uh, let's uh, start with the uh, Wrestling Observers then. And with uh, you've got the torches, right, Chad? Yes, I do. Okay, so September the 24th is the first one I've got. What, what's your first one? Oh, I actually have a, uh, a couple before that. The one dated 9-13. It's torch number 86. Mm-hmm. That gave the review of the show, but it also talks about the Clash rating overall. Okay. And and uh, the, it did a 5 rating with an 8 share, and the main event did a 6.8 rating, uh, which translated into 3.8 million homes, making it the most viewed cable TV wrestling match in history up to that point. Uh, so that was for the Black Scorpion versus Sting. So overall, Clash was kind of, uh, surprisingly to me, a rating success. Uh, but but in that torch, Keller had a kind of good 
uh, argumentative article that, you know, good ratings actually could kind of be a curse in disguise because of the lackluster product or confusion or hokiness kind of turning uh, the new viewers away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was pretty astute of him. And uh, I didn't mention this last time. I, th- I, I know I said I thought Bruce Mitchell's debut column was coming up. It was actually in Torch number 85, and he uh, he did it collaboratively with uh, John Hitchcock. But it, it didn't it, – I went back and saw that, and there was some back and forth between him and another Torch columnist. So they were kind of having their own uh, – message board war against each other in the primitive days right there in the newsletter. (laughs) Uh, So that was kind of interesting to see. And then uh, the only, just a couple of quick news bits on torch number 87, which is dated September 20th. uh, A lot of readers, uh, Keller gives like usually a page or two uh, to reader feedback, which most of it is okay, but it's kind of weird when you only have six pages to devote that much to it. But, uh, but a lot of them were kind of mystified for the high grades for Clash 12. Uh, do you know who Mick Karch is, Parv? No. No, I don't. He I do. A, I used uh, to pull from the K-State Memories Board. Yeah, and he's an old, uh, like, AWA uh, ring announcer, uh, stuff like that. Well, anyway, uh, he gave the Clash a 7.5 out of 10, Parv, and said it was the best Clash or pay-per-view offering in some time. That's um, a controversial opinion. Controversial opinion, absolutely. Uh, And then he also talks about how Starcade was moved to St. Louis and uh, speculation as to why that move was made and actually the date changed from 12-15 to 12-16. And the speculation is that uh, Evil Jim Hurd wanted the show in his hometown. So that's why he moved it from St. Petersburg to St. Louis. Wow. And at this point in time, uh, the plan for Halloween Havoc was a Scott Steiner versus Ric Flair singles match. A couple of interesting things there. First of all, uh, Solomon, do you remember Clash 12? Did you watch that show at all? No, I didn't. Um, I think I had mentioned it um, around this time after Bash 90. I kind of checked out of wrestling for a while. So I remember um, right after that Bash, I kind of, all this area is pretty foggy for me. It wasn't until like Mania 7 that I started watching wrestling again. So you, uh, so you've only seen this stuff since, right? You, you kind of tapped out as a fan around that time. Um, yeah, so when I watched Havoc, it was actually my first time watching Havoc. I mean, I saw bits and pieces before, um, but it was my first time watching the show from front to back. And and the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, it, it's, inter- it's a bit of a risk taking Starcade to St. Louis, Chad, because um, it's been a uh, WF town essentially since 1984, St. Louis. Um, yeah, so- and they, they hadn't drawn well at all either when they went there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it took them a good while to draw in St. Louis, even WF, I, I know. Um, it's kind of, it's such a weird thing. I mean, we'll talk more about it when we get to Starcade, but why wouldn't you have Starcade in, in the Omni, you know, have it in Atlanta or have it in Charlotte every year? Like, it's a, I think it's a risk taking it taking it to places like St. Louis or didn't they take it up to, they took it to Chicago one year? I think it's a, I think it's a risk to take their bigger show out of their hotbed. Um, any thoughts on that before we move on? Or? Well, I think... I don't, Louis, it, go ahead, it, 
Oh, sorry. I just remember, you know, I I didn't see Starcade 90 at the time it happened. I, I, you know, I watched it about a year later, and I, I thought it was cool only because I was a big mark for, like, the keel, and, you know, I always, I'd never been there, but I always thought it was cool, but you're right. In retrospect, I mean, having it in their backyard would have been better than taking it on the road. Yeah, and Chad, sorry? Uh, I agree with that. Okay. Well, um, I... Are we up to September the 24th? Shall I? Uh, yeah, that'll be the next one. Well, it, I mean, Meltzer also goes on about the monster rating that Cla- the Clash did. Um, but then it's followed up with basically the worst week in terms of attendance for a long time. So I, I, I guess it comes back to that talking point that you, were to, that you mentioned that Keller was going on about. How, um, you know, better exposure isn't necessarily a great thing. Because... Greater exposure actually means that you're, you're exposed when you don't have a good product. Right. Um, so all of these extra eyeballs possibly only watched it for that one week because it didn't translate into a good game. Um, the main thing of interest for this week, at least from my point of view, was that Sting, Brian Pillman, Tom Zenk, Brad Armstrong and Jim Ross did a family feud taping um, <laughs> where apparently they did five shows uh, where they beat the Glow Girls uh, five shows in a row. Now, has anybody seen that? The yes, I have. <laughs> I watched it at the time it actually came on the air. I remember that. <laughs> Where I have to watch that? Where is it? Uh, I think there's probably a certain YouTube footage set that you have that should uh, have that on there. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I have to, I have to watch that because um, it sounds amazing. I can imagine Jim Ross was carrying that team though. In terms of the, uh, in terms of the answer, oh, Brad Pillman's a pretty smart guy as well, I guess. Um, yeah, Family Feud is incidentally called Family Fortunes in this country. Um, it's the same show, though, right? It's the one where yeah, it's the same show. Our survey says, yeah. Actually, uh, I was looking at the listings, and the one that uh, is on that footage is actually must be an earlier version because it aired. I'm showing it aired in. Uh, in May, who was on the WCW team? Sting, Pillman, Zenk, Armstrong, and Jim Ross. Okay, yeah, that is different because the ones I saw had the Steiners on it, and they were absolutely dreadful. <laughs> so they must have done two appearances there. Who, who, I, I want to have a word with who was picking the WCW team. Yeah. There. You don't, you, you don't pick uh, Rick and Scott Steiner for your quiz team. <laughs> um, also in this particular newsletter, JYD pinned on in 10 seconds in a match that Meltzer gives minus five stars, which I don't, there you think, go. I don't think I've seen that before. <laughs> um, and then finally, evil Jim Hurd has nixed a feud between the Midnight Express and the Steiners. Um, so apparently Jim Cornette was annoyed because he was asked to come up with the angle himself for this particular storyline. And so he suggested a tar and feather angle uh, in 1990. <laughs> yeah. um, Jim Hurd was not amused. Uh, also, Cornette had walked out of a interview taping after he was asked to do an interview again. So apparently what happened was um, Paulie dangerously was interviewing him and Cornette told him to shut up and save his wind to blow up his next match tonight. <laughs> so, um, and then Jim, Jim, Jim Ross asked Corny to do the interview again and he walked out. So Cornette is in like kind of a bad mood around this time, as, as, we'll, um, as we'll see. Um, and the next one I've got is October the 1st. 
Okay. Uh, the September 27th dated torch, torch number 88. It talks about a power hour being moved to Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that'll air uh, right before the uh, WGN show, if you picked up both stations. And then uh, Keller raised about the gauntlet idea that I think both me and you uh, both like Parv. And he uh, praised the most recent one with Scott Steiner, which I have seen uh, that gauntlet series of matches. And that is very well done. And then uh, the, the crown jewel of this issue is the final part of the Torch Talk with Jim Ross, uh, which was... Uh, part three of that interview and it was an amazing read but it mostly uh dealt with uwf so i won't get too in depth with it but uh he mainly kind of toes the line on the demise of the uwf and blames the oil region and it drying up uh but he does admit they expanded a little too quickly and one thing you can really tell within this uh, part of the interview is how fun Jim Ross is within Watts, with uh, Bill Watts, because he's pretty argumentative with uh, Keller when Keller would suggest different, more kind of wrestling aspects of why the UWF failed. Uh, Jim Ross did a lot of deflecting and mostly kind of blamed the economy. Right, and well, that's a topic we've been through inside out on the PWO board. And as anybody who's a member of that board will know, my view is that it's a combination of all of the different things, not just, I think, it's a mistake to isolate any one of them. Um, like, I think, you know, right, we, we don't need to go over all of that, that now. Yeah, but. yeah I mean, well, I mean, I'll just say, like, no matter what you, I mean, in the, in the interview, Ross says like some high unemployment rate that was going on in Louisiana. I think it's like 13%, which that is very high. But, uh, n- you know, no matter what you say about like uh, how many people from out of town come to WrestleMania or whatever, I think there was for WrestleMania 27 in Atlanta, uh, I, th- I can't remember the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure like 25,000 of the tickets or something along those lines were locally bought. And this was when Atlanta, the city, had around 10% unemployment rate or 11%. So I, I do think, you know, you can make a case that the product can draw even in tough economic times to a certain extent. I, I think that's true. And there was that great – did you listen to – I think it was Meltzer on um, – Meltzer himself on the Steve Austin podcast recently. In fact, he interviewed Wade Keller and then he interviewed uh, Dave Meltzer – in this amazing thing where wrestling has come around to the point where one of the biggest draws of all time is interviewing guys like Keller and Meltzer. I thought it was just amazing that this was happening. Yeah. And um, I think his Meltzer tells a story about Paul Bosch. Um, Paul Bosch told him once, you know, he went through all of these different excuses and then at the end of it said, but at the bottom line, if people want to see the show, they will come. So I think there's, you know, there's diff- I do think the economy had a part to play, but I don't think that it's an insurmountable thing. But I, I think the, the, the problem comes is that, if say if the economy is low, Chad, mm-hmm. I think it means that the company has to try that much harder. Oh, yeah. I agree um, with that. You know, people aren't, like, it's going to take something special for people to come out. And it's clear that Watts wasn't doing that in 1987, for example. Right. So. Well, I mean, you could see in late 86 where they started tailing off with, like, I mean, you look at the Hills and Devastation Incorporated, Wild Bill Irwin, Bad Leroy Brown, and, I mean, it just, the the talent at the top, I mean, at the very top, it was good still, but at the, you know, 
they didn't have a lot of depth on the bench when it came to top talent by the end of 1986. And then you had Hacksaw wanting to leave, and the Fantastics left. So, yeah, the, the writing was on the wall. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I never said it wasn't the product. I just said that you can't absolutely discount the economy. That's all I ever said. Okay. So, um, anything else for that torture, Chad? Nope, that's uh, it. And weirdly, there's n- no news at all from the October the 1st uh, one. Um, Meltzer's kind of in one of those periods where he's really focusing on Japan. Um, so there's tons of stuff on Japan in the October the 1st one, but he, he's got very little to say about NWA. He just basically reports the house shows. Um, so the next one I've got is October the 8th. Okay, uh, Torch 89, October the 4th, doesn't have a ton of stuff. Either uh, he talks about, I guess, Wendell has went AWOL again, mm. supposedly, which kind of plays into the show. Uh, Ollie's having some conflict backstage, and then there's still no indication on who will be the uh, Black Scorpion. Uh, and also internally, this was the first, uh, this torch is the first uh, torch where Bruce Mitchell was a columnist. So he was a full-on columnist here towards number 89. But uh, then Keller gives a, uh, a kind of interesting article, and I'm interested for uh, you guys' thoughts, where he argues that a new book and standard should be created where you can only be the booker for one year. He argues that that would keep things fresh, and he also argues that like grudges between certain individuals and bookers would be reduced, and the booker wouldn't have to worry about saving up to certain long-term angles or uh, kind of keeping stuff in the bag for something in the future that may or may not happen. Um, well, Solomon, I'll let you go first there. I do have some thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I see them having uh, maybe not so... Uh, rigid of a time period, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, Bill Watts talked about it, that after a while, a guy would just kind of start burning out and then he would, you know, rotate or revolve bookers. They did it in Memphis with Jerry and the two Jerry's. So I could see how that would work. Although I wouldn't have such a, a rigid time frame. I would just, you got to get a sense of when a guy's starting to, to grasp for straws. Cause if you even look at Dusty back in, in Crockett, he was, I mean, it was, he was successful there longer than a year, at least creativity wise. And then he didn't start like really um, reaching and, and over, you know, hot shotting the territory till probably I was maybe eighty seven. Mm. So I just you just gotta fill it out. I think. Well, yeah, I, I do think it can work. Like mid south, uh, you know, he had Ernie Ladd, and then he had um, then he had uh, Grizzly Smith, didn't he? Like he was out, and then he brought in. Didn't he bring in Buck Robley for a while? Um, I think uh, yeah. Bill Dundee did a turn there, right? Or no? Yeah. Um, 84 to 85 yeah. was then. Yeah, and he wouldn't let Dundee in the ring. He was like, uh, that was his rule, that Dundee couldn't wrestle as long as he was the booker. Um, and uh, But the thing with uh, Mid-South is that Watts was always the boss, right? And right. I think that's the important thing. There has to be a guy who the buck stops with, who everybody knows is boss. Um, and... Um, so that's why it can work in a scenario like that. Whereas I think we've seen Chad a complete cl- clusterfuck here in WCW ever since Dusty left. Really, like it's never oh, yeah. been it's never been that situation where you know there's one solid boss who makes all the shots. Um, so th- there's that. I also think that the biggest argument against it is uh, the Vince Pat Patterson team, which, as far as I can see were the guys calling the shots for WCW from about 1984 for, for WF 
from about 84 until, what, 92 or something. And I think, you know, that's some of the best booking you'll ever see during that period. So I don't know. Like, it, you know, I, I don't think you can be too prescriptive about it. Some it, it may work, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, seems kind of arbitrary to me. Like, um, I can see why he's making the argument, but I can also see some good arguments for not doing it that way. Yeah. What do, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think definitely the the WWF booking style is a good argument against. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily and and you know the writing team members now uh, in WWF get burned out so quickly. But even somebody like Brian Gewertz, I mean, he was with the company and like the head raw writer for a very long time. Until just recently, and you know whether was it was it great episodes all the time? No, certainly not. But I don't think his run was awful. You know, I think you could chart up a lot of kind of successes with the rise of Cena, the rise of Batista, uh, even you know the the rise of Edge to a certain extent uh, through some of his booking decisions. So I, I, I think there is kind of both arguments that can be made. I don't really know if there's a right or wrong answer. Yeah. I would say if the writer is uh, Vince Russo, uh, limit him to one year or maybe limit him, limit him to six months or something. But it really depends on who the guy is, right? Yeah. Who, who I mean, the... I mean, somebody like Gabe uh, Sapolsky in ring of honor. I mean, he had a good run too. I mean, he really had like a, uh, you know, if you if you'd limit in to a year, you wouldn't have had the CCW versus Ring of Honor feud, which was the creative peak, really, of Ring of Honor, and that was three three years into his run or whatever. So, yeah, but I I think the ultimate thing is you need a big you need a big boss who can come in at any time, and no matter who the booker is, says this is the way it's going to be, and I think like we talked about Dusty. I think that's one thing that Jim Crockett Jr. never did to Dusty is say, look, we're going to do it this way because I'm the boss. Um, and I think in all the most successful territories, like St. Louis, in St. Louis, for example, Sam, no matter who the booker was, Sam Muchnick would always have the final say. Vince in WF, even to this day, still has the final say. And I think and Bill Watts had the final say. It has to be like that, I think. Yeah, otherwise, you get mixed messages. And I've, you know, I've experienced that. I'm sure we all have in the real world that are jobs where you have guys with a lot of titles that sound important, but, you know, too many Indians are not enough chiefs. So, yeah, you got to have a, uh, someone that's going to rein a booker in when the booker gets too irresponsible. Yeah. Okay, and anything else, Chad, for that? that? That is it for that issue. So, I'm on to October the 8th. Okay. Uh, and, again, Meltzer's concentrating on Japan more, but there is a couple of little things here. There was a guy called Tony Zane, who was meant to be playing the Black Scorpion, Scorpion, and he actually did a TV taping, um, but he was charged with possession of marijuana and uh, <laughs> has been taken off the show now. Uh, to date, by Meltzer's reckoning, there have been at least six or seven different Scorpions, and there are plenty more to follow. <laughs> um, the Samoan SWAT team are history, um, and they apparently they were as much fired um, as they quit. Um, uh, Solomon, are you a fan of the Samoan SWAT team? Because I think they've been absolutely atrocious in 1990. So I'm glad that they've I gone. I gotta say, I have a soft spot in my heart for them because when I started watching wrestling in '83, the Wild Samoans were in the WWF, and 
he, you know, I liked back then. I liked him a lot. So when the Samoan SWAT team came back, um, you know, formed like an 88 in world class, I kind of liked them. They weren't like my favorite team, but I, I liked them. I, I, I think this version, though, with the Samoan Savage and uh, Fatu, like once Sat- Samu was gone, they've been crap. Oh, Samu's gone at this point, huh? Yeah. Oh, Samu was long gone, right, Chad? I mean, yeah, right. yes. Uh, pretty much anything from, I think, even Starcade 89 was Samoan Savage. Yeah. yeah. He, he has just lost it as a worker, basically, by this point. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad to see them go, Chad. Are you? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were. Uh, yeah, Paul, you're not, you don't really like those type of gimmicks, right? The jungle, the kind of jungle gimmicks? I, I've ne- no, no, I've never been a big fan of the of the and I'm I, I'm watching the original Wild Samoans back in seventy nine eighty at the minute, and they're like Afro and I mean Seeko in particular just sucks. I mean it's just so, <laughs> I, I hate watching uh, I hate watching them. <laughs> so, um, I guess for me it depends. I mean I'm kind of like I like Kamala, I like the Samoans, don't like Abdullah or the Missing Link. I'm kind of it just depends on who the guy is as far as those type of gimmicks go. Right. Okay, well, everybody's got their thing. Like, Chad doesn't like Rick Steiner, do you, Chad? Uh, no. I'd, I, like, uh, I'd say dumb, like, uh, baby faces are probably my thing. Like, the kind of Eugene, Rick Steiner, Jameson from WWF. That George, George, George Steele. George Steele, yes. Yeah. Those are uh, my absolute least favorite Norman. characters. Norman. Norman the Lunatic. <laughs> okay. You could make an amazing stable with those five guys, right? Yeah. Ch- Ch- yeah. Chad's ultimate worst Survivor Series team, wasn't he? <laughs> um, another guy who's been fired is Buddy Landell. He missed two shows, and then he was fired, and then the very next day was rehired. So there's some... oh, six. yeah. I was wondering because I know he shows up on our next show. So. Some some classic WCW leadership view there. Fire a guy and then rehire him. Um, <laughs> and then apparently, um, uh, Moondog Rex. So Randy Cully, who we know has been working under a mask as Mr. X for all this time, um, he was set to be working uh, Sting um, at a Baltimore show. But they picked up on a on a Moondog Rex chant, so they switched the Black Scorpion to Bill Irwin that night. So there we are. So basically, the Black Scorpion is any jobber they can find at the moment. So <laughs> is that why Bill Irwin had a haircut by Halloween Havoc '90? He had to fit into the hair into the mask or something. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're very observant, Solomon. That's why Bill Irwin had the because he'd he'd recently been working as the Black Scorpion. That's exactly it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. So the next one for me is October the 15th. That's it for October 8th. Okay. Torch number 90, dated October the 11th, uh, has another good Torch talk with uh, Eddie Gilbert, but it's again featured on UWF. And he, I don't I don't know, I guess Keller was feeling like reminiscent of the UWF because he essentially kind of repeats a lot of the same questions he gives to Ross in this one. Uh, but it's an interesting read. Uh, and then he also gives his predictions and analysis for Halloween Havoc this early in advance, which seems weird. But uh, he says at this point he thinks it's a, essentially a glorified house show. Uh, but he talks about, while he's doing his preview, he talks about like the Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express and the Tommy Rich versus uh, GW Storm matches is taking place, which, as we'll see, is not the uh, 
not the case. But uh, keep that in mind, kind of Keller's low expectations when I start reading off his match ratings when we go through the show. Uh, and then you have a, a nine, the 900 number had a fan jump night. Uh, which included a lot of wrestling personalities in WCW in a conference call format interacting with fans. So I thought that was kind of a cool concept where they had different wrestlers, managers, announcers mm. uh, on at different times, and you could kind of sort of like a free-form discussion. Yeah, and didn't Keller say that 900 number was a big enough for him for many years as well? Yeah, show. well, he, in in this, uh, when he was talking about this, he talked about how the 900 number for WCW was a uh, like good revenue source at this point in time, uh, which I know we talked about the numbers before, but uh, it does seem like they were making money off that at this point. It just seems crazy to me, like dollar a minute or whatever it is. It's like, yeah. man. <laughs> Any, anything else for this one? Um, <laughs> there are a couple more things that you will like. One, uh, Tony Schiavone is keeping kayfabe alive on the hotline as he speculates that the Black Scorpion won't be someone currently employed with WCW. Right. And then, uh, this is a part special, this story. They are jobbing the Z-Man out in hopes he will quit. He <laughs> earns $3,000 a week and their hope is that him losing all the time will embarrass him enough to leave. <laughs> I, uh, I actually heard Not a fan of Pink, huh? No, I think he sucks. Uh, he's, he's Man, I'll be honest with you. I liked his tag team with Kurt Henning in 85 in the AWA, but that, you know, that was about it. I, I think that's his perfect... He's found his perfect role, though, I think, which is just getting destroyed in three minutes uh, by, <laughs> by the newest monster face, the uh, newest monster heel coming in. So... Uh, I think I'm, I'm. I hope he doesn't quit. I hope he just fights it out, taking his three grand to get destroyed. Um, any anything else, uh, Chad? That is all for that issue. So, um, get this: October the fifteenth. Now, Thunderbolt Patterson is history. He walked out of a TV taping after the Steiners refused to walk out with him for a match. <laughs> <laughs> can you be? In, can you imagine being the Steiners in 1990 and being told, right, we want you to come out with this old Thunderbolt Patterson? Right? <laughs> um, Harley Race is still working with the company, but he's working with a, a torn uh, deltoid, um, which explains why some of his recent matches have been subpar. Um, and I, I did check to see who Race was working, and he's got a series of matches with Junk f- uh, Food Dog, so oh God. that might be another reason. Um, and get this, uh, the NWA, brackets Evil Jim Hurd, were in talks with Tony Lister, a.k.a. Zeus, mm. <laughs> but couldn't reach a deal. So he wanted to add him to his collection, like maybe make him a dude with attitude or something, <laughs> or... <laughs> Uh, a money Zeus versus El Gigante feud, or <laughs> what could they have done with Zeus in 1990? Yeah, I can't see them doing uh, doing much with Zeus. I mean, I'm a... <laughs> um, and uh, Melter says the clincher is that he wouldn't have been able to work a Zeus either. So it's like <laughs> the one. <laughs> I see how yeah, leave the WCW to get the WWF leftovers, huh? <laughs> well, um, thankfully they they didn't stoop to that level at this point. I wonder if they'd ever use him again, though. <laughs> um, so October 22nd is the next of mine, uh, Chad. Okay, uh, Torch 91 is dated October 18th, and uh, 
I'm sure this is probably one of your notes part, but uh, Rick Rude has quit the WWF. Yes. Mm. Uh, so so keep that in mind. Pretty pretty big news. Uh, he hadn't really done anything since SummerSlam, uh, but it's kind of amazing between his gap where he quit right here and. I was thinking about this today, actually. I mean, like, he, he quit before Halloween Havoc 1990, and if you know the show he uh, debuts on that we'll get to later in the future, it really feels like a lot happens between, like, right now and then. Well, it's, it's, it's basically a year from now, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically a year, so I don't know, and Keller didn't have any details, and I haven't done much research on it, but did he have, like, a no-compete, or was he injured, or what exactly was the deal there? It's, it's uh, a, a little bit strict. Did, how, why did he actually walk out? Did, was there a reason given? Uh, I, I think I've heard it, but I can't remember. I think he was under contract. I think he was under contract. That's why he couldn't. I heard something about something about that. I'm not positive, but I think he was under contract. That's why he couldn't show up on WCW. I don't know, though. That's a, just a foggy memory right okay um i've I've got Meltzer on this because i i didn't uh because it was wf i typically don't um don't cover it in my notes but it said the biggest loss is rick rude whose departure had little to do with weak crowds rude quit the promotion in the middle of last week which is among the uh, the reason of several c-team shows being cancelled the early word was that rude was simply holding out because he wasn't happy with his SummerSlam payoff which was reportedly $17,000. But you can always take numbers like that with a grain of salt. Rude and McMahon, uh, Vince McMahon, had been at odds since the two had problems when Rude had the tricep injury and missed a few weeks' worth of main events with the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, By early last week, the word was out that Rude was gone. At the television tapings this past week, they switched the Rude Bossman angle to Bobby Heenan versus uh, Bossman. Ah, well, that explains that. I always wonder yeah. why uh, Heenan had that little late feud with Bossman there. Well, yeah, like Rude, uh, Rude actually kind of started out as part of that angle, like insulting Bossman's mom and all that stuff. And then they essentially just put all the heat from Rude onto Heenan. Uh, but, I, but I do believe the, uh, the one, I can't remember if the segment, because there's that great segment where like Heenan gets... Uh, handcuffed at ringside or whatever and um uh and he's like just hanging out there for the whole superstars episode and i think that may be before uh rooted left officially but i'm not positive on that yeah i'd I'd always wonder why heenan like essentially did that very like because that's late in the day for heenan to be working an actual angle himself like as a pretty pretty much like his last angle honestly yeah so no, that, that's uh, I'd never drawn that connection with Rude leaving and and that angle before, but um, this came up on the board recently because somebody I'd never heard it suggested, but um, our uh, well, one of the members of the PWO community uh, suggested that um, Rude wasn't as injured as he made out, um, and that people thought that he was just content because you know when he actually retired, uh, Chad mm-hmm. in '94 that his injury wasn't that bad, but he kind of made a bigger deal of it to take the Lloyds of London payments and, and right. stuff. And uh, that was an interesting thing as well. And people were pointing back, people were saying, it's possible. Because I was saying, well, like, why would he do that when, you know, wrestlers have only got a short shelf life and he was pretty much at the peak of his powers there in, you know, 93 kind of time. He would have been in, like, the world title picture 
Um, why would he have sat out if he was healthy? And um, they pointed back to this year that he spends out. And it's re- it is quite weird that a guy at this point in his career would basically d- disappear for a year and sit at home. Very unusual. Yeah, Wikipedia says he did select uh, independent matches and then also worked a tour of all Japan. But that's pretty much it. So, yeah, very strange. Okay. Um, I, I've always heard that Rue was quite, quite sometimes a difficult guy to do business with. Like, um, yeah. Bobby Heenan always says that he didn't want him as a manager, for example. Right, so, right. Uh, oh, that Rue didn't want Bobby Heenan as a manager? Yeah, he, that, that Rue thought that Heenan took the heat off him and uh, resented having him at ringside and stuff. Okay, yeah, I've, you know, there's guys, guys seem to be split on Heenan. A lot of guys love him, but then some guys do say that, that he kind of that Heenan was all for himself, but. You know, I, I like him as a manager. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I, I always get the impression that Heenan's one of the good guys in wrestling, but but uh, I know Rue was like was seen as being like a kind of a, a bit of a loner in the locker room and stuff. From what I've, you know, just from what I've picked up of guys um, talking about. Any, any other stuff from this one, Chad? Yeah, there's actually a lot of tidbits on this. Speaking of Bobby Heenan, he apparently visited the WCW offices. Did Meltzer have anything on this? Because I thought that was fascinating. Oh, uh, no. I, I don't recall seeing it. Let me just double check, but I don't think so. Yeah, because uh, he says he like visited the WCW offices. Keller reported like it was, you know, I mean, he, he seemed pretty convicted that he visited to try to work out a deal or just to have preliminary discussions or whatever, and nothing worked out. And I'd never had heard that. And I uh, thought that was kind of interesting around this point in time, because even with your uh, Black Scorpion, you know, your various theories on that, you could have possibly found a scenario where Heenan could have leaded the charge for the uh, oh. the inevitable Black Scorpion. That's amazing. The Black Scorpion is Heenan. That's awesome. Yeah. That's the best angle I've heard. So we've got lots of those possible angles coming up, Chad, I know, because the listeners have written in, but that's probably my favorite one already. Right. So, uh, and then also on this show, uh, I'm sorry, on this issue, a couple other little tidbits. Uh, Great Mood will be in for the Starcade Tag Title Tournament, along with uh, a par favorite Kamala 1 and 2. That's a possibility right. at this point. Right. El Gigante's first TBS match will be in a couple of weeks. Uh, Robert Gibson is injured and out for 8 to 12 months. And then uh, a couple... Keller gave this uh, in his article this week. He gave an argument that the WWF should really uh, get behind Bret Hart. And he could be the solution to the WWF's problems. And I thought, like, whereas in, I think, 1990, around this point, you could certainly see potential... In Brett, I don't think it was a surefire, you know, sure bet that he was going to be a main event level star. Uh, so I found that pretty kind of good predictor uh, for Keller to write a. I mean, he wrote a long article about it. Yeah, well, yeah, especially in 1990. Yeah, well, he he had that little bit as a like they gave him a kind of little singles tease in 1989, and then right. they kind of shunted him back to the tag ranks in '90, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Pretty. Pretty. Pretty good foresight from Keller. Yes, and then the uh, last thing, and this plays into the next torch, but uh, Ross blast. Uh, Ross apparently blasted Jim Cornette on the hotline for his whiny attitude, 
and keep that in mind for the next torch because there's a, a good tidbit in that one. <laughs> okay. Um, so th- let me see where we are now. Um, I'm on October the 22nd at this point. Okay. And um, yeah, this is really where Meltzer focuses on the comings and the goings in WWF, um, which I didn't take like I didn't take a good deal from. But I mean, he does note that a hell of a lot of guys are leaving at this point. Like Akeem quit as well uh, after Rick Rude quit. Um, I guess a smaller loss for them, but you know, Akeem had been headline shows like you know in the year before. Um, and then like just the list of names here: Jimmy Jimmy Snooker, Jim Powers, Boris Zukov, Nikolai Volkov, uh, Pez Watley, Jim Brunzel, Black Bart, Paul Diamond, Coco Beware, Ron Garvin. Uh, Blackjack Lenza, probably Power and Glory, he says, probably Demolition Before Long, Valentine, um, Honky Tonk Man. There's a hell of a lot of guys, kind of, who are on the chopping block coming up. Um, and, well, I didn't check to see if they all left, but apparently they're all about to leave. So this is like one of those times where a ton of, like, WF have these every once in a while, right? Where they have like a massive cull. Um, yeah, yeah. And this was around one of those times. So there wasn't a lot of space left for the NWA after he'd been through all of that. But uh, he's got the talk of uh, Muta and Chono coming in. Yes. The tag tournament at Starcade. Um, and he goes on about the show being in, in St. Louis. And they're going to bring in Dick the Bruiser um, to pop the crowd there. Because obviously he was the biggest draw in the 70s for them. And um, there's talk of bringing in other old timers for the St. Louis show as well. Which makes sense, I think, because you know you've got to assume that some of those old guys will uh, will come out to see a big wrestling show. Right. Uh, that was it. Okay. Uh, Torch number ninety-two, October twenty-fifth. So I said in last week that Ross was blasting Cornette on the hotline. Well, I guess so. Ross got in contact with the Torch after that because it says that Ross says that last uh, issue's comments about the heat with him and Jim Cornette is false and that it was uh, done in the essence of an angle that they were building together. And then (laughs) Keller actually prints this, that Ross said that it was pretty humorous that someone like Keller couldn't tell the difference between a work and a shoot being a a wrestling journalist. (laughs) So (laughs) So, there we are. Kind of cranky, a good good kind of example of cranky uh, JR there. Uh, and then this one's funny too because this uh, was two days before Halloween Havoc, but uh, it's assumed that Barry Wyndham won't be returning to WCW anytime soon. Mm. And uh, Center Stage held their uh, TV tapings and had a more lively audience. So that's a pretty, uh, really kind of underrated, important event that happens in WCW history where they start going to Center Stage and. Most of their TV matches for, I guess, the next uh, two to three years will be from center stage. And so it'll see a lot of uh, really good TV stuff coming up. Yeah, and um, I uh, I got fond memories of center stage. I think, um, you know, I, I enjoyed Did they keep on taping there, like, all the way right to the end, Chad, for the no. su- Saturday night? or They went to uh, Disney. Oh, of course. And then uh, now, now I do. I want to know, and I'm not positive, and I'm sure somebody can correct me. But do you remember, like, very later on, when they did like WCW Pro, and um, 
and it was kind of like with the stained glass graffiti windows. I'm talking about like 1997-ish. I don't know where that was taped at. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm kind of the opposite of you, Parv, where, you know, I I was really affectionate towards the TBS Techwood Studios, but looking back, and now I'm watching, I've been watching some, like, stuff from the, the TBS Studios, and I mean, even though the product was hot, the crowd was just way too small, and then center stage, when they moved there, of course, I didn't like it at first, but now looking back, I mean, you had a perfect amount of people for a TV taping, so, I mean, it, it was the right thing to get away from the, the Techwood Studios and go, go somewhere a little bigger. I- I, I love the Techwood studio as well. I mean, I'm right in my element watching um, matches from there. But I, I also have fondness for the uh, for the um, center stage. I, I, I really, in fact, I, I'm a I'm pretty much a mark for NWA WCW right the way until about '94, as we'll see on these shows. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> center stage is a good place uh, now. I mean, it still exists. And um, I actually watched the uh, the Ring of Honor, did two shows there when WrestleMania was here for WrestleMania 27. And uh, I've also seen a couple of concerts there. And it has good acoustics. So it's it's a cool place to go see a show at. Um, you mentioned, did I mention uh, in the very first newsletter I read out today that uh, Wyndham is out of action with a knee and foot injury? No, I don't think so. I remember that. Oh, I, I missed that because it seems weird that Keller has missed the fact that Wyndham, like Meltzer's got a report of him being injured and um, Keller seems to think he's away AWOL. I'm wondering yeah. if he, did, did Keller not read the wrestling? Uh, did he miss that, I wonder? Cause, um, I would assume he was reading the uh, Wrestling Observer and following that very closely. Yeah. It, but it, said, I, it, it says Wyndham's out of action till November with a knee and foot injury. So... Um. Okay. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the last torch before the actual show review. And I've got a final observer, October the 29th. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that Meltzer tends to be later with his um, pay per view reviews than Keller. He always just seems to be like a week or so off with. Well, it may just be the dating system. I don't know. I mean, I know now, like uh, the Observer will be released on the website on Wednesday, but the date will be the following Monday. Right, okay. So, so like, uh, this upcoming Wednesday is, what, December 4th? But the, uh, but the date on the actual issue will say, like, December 9th. Right, okay. I mean, well, he doesn't review Halloween Havoc until the November 5th newsletter okay yeah so that, right. that'd be the same week as keller's because keller's would have been it, it's dated like 11 uh november 2nd so. right okay oh so keller's just a couple of days beforehand uh yeah most of the I, think, time. I think keller may uh i think keller may put the date of the issue when he would actually like print it yeah uh, and then Meltzer would sort of shoot for more of a like a delivery date um yeah, because, I mean, he often says, by the time you read this, X, Y, Z, you know, sorry. Um, so anyway, Jim Cornette is in more hot water um, when he, because uh, a fan called Mark Williams jumped up onto the guardrail and uh, Cornette whacked him in the face with a tennis racket, spitting him open. <laughs> um, this made the local paper in Altoona. Where the hell is that? Altoona? Pennsylvania. It's in Pennsylvania. 
Um, and uh, well, apparently uh, Bob Eaton was like holding the guy, and um, Cornette whacked him, and then he went as for a second time, and Eaton had to stop Cornette hitting him again. <laughs> Um, but Meltzer blames security for this. Like he reckons security should have been all over that, so that this shouldn't have happened, um, and that this sort of incident isn't anything new to wrestling. And the police apparently uh, were taking a kind of neutral line on this because they said because the guy jumped up on the guardrail, he kind of had what was coming to him. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Cornette's in a bit of trouble. Um, and then he talks about, uh, Meltzer now talks about the wisdom of building Starcade around a tournament again. And Chad, I thought we can talk about that when we actually do Starcade. Sure, uh, yes. Yeah, um, and then more wrestlers on TV. Luger was on an episode of Superboy. Anyone seen that? <laughs> I don't remember that show. No, no I, I don't either. Yeah. I, don't, I also have not seen Superboy, but apparently Luger... Wait, is that the show with the little curly-headed 12-year-old boy or something? I... I trying to remember because that was around my time frame but i i can't say for sure well, well um i don't know put it into google maybe luger's appearance on there will be there and um poorly dangerously appeared on an episode of sally jesse Raphael talk show <laughs> so yeah, Chicago. they were um they were doing more tv appearances at this time and the only other thing i've got is that um they brought in big cat hughes for uh, the Omni Thanksgiving show that they do every year. Um, and I, I kind of want to say that Big Cat Hughes has been floating around. I've seen his name kind of on other observers as well. But um, is that Mr. That's Mr. Hughes, right? Yes, should be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because he, uh, he was a, he was like, a, uh, was he a football player before, Mr. Hughes? Big, big, big Cat uh, Hughes? I don't, I don't know, probably. <laughs> I thought he was a bouncer. What were you going to say, Chet? You thought he was a bouncer? Yeah, like when they discovered him, I thought he was a bouncer at a strip club. I'm not positive. Oh, well, I'm sure if we... Yeah, uh, while briefly attending Kansas State University, Hughes played on the football team. Right, okay. After no, leaving university, he trained professional wrestling under Sonny Myers and Bob Geigel. So there you have it. <laughs> I, I'm just sure that if Jim, um, if he had any sort of football background, I would have remembered it from Jim Ross telling me, you know, this guy played football. <laughs> um, and that's it for um, for the observers and the torch. Interesting. Um, it's kind of a low, like a fallow period for NWA news around this time. It seemed like Keller had more to say for himself. Yeah, really, I mean, angle-wise around this time with WCW, I mean, with this show, there's some backstage kind of clamoring and positioning. Uh, you have some de-emphasizing of the dudes with attitudes. And then, uh, but, but I mean, if you watch the stuff week to week, um, I mean, the Doom versus Horseman stuff is kind of the top angle along with the Black Scorpion Sting stuff. And then everything else really takes a back seat. I mean, there just is not a lot of uh, kind of stuff going on. Yeah, it's kind of. I feel like this is a kind of a bit, little bit of a depressing time with Evil Jim Hurd there and stuff. It's kind yeah, of like even, even in WWF around this time, there's not a ton going on either because you had uh, Hogan rehashing the feud with Earthquake around the horn, uh, Sergeant Slaughter's rise, which is okay but hadn't really gotten into full gear yet and then uh ultimate warrior is a 
complete mess at this time because this is when he's teaming up with the Road Warriors versus all three demolition members and all that stuff. So this October, September, October, and November, uh, and even up to December are really kind of low periods in 1990 for both companies. One of the lower periods you can date back to at least, I'd say, 1983, probably the lowest up to that point for both companies together. And so is it not a surprise for you that Meltzer's kind of focusing on Japan and other stuff at this point? Yeah, I mean, Japan, especially all Japan, was uh, very exhilarating around this time with the rise of Masawa and Kawada and Kobashi. And then uh, also, uh, I don't know how much he reported on it, but uh, Lucha... CMLL from 1990 is the best best promotion in the world in my eyes from 1990, and all Japan is certainly no slouch of a promotion either. There's definitely a lot more talk of Mexico than there has been on these these things. And uh, another thing that he started doing, actually, is having um, some guest writers in. Uh, I don't know if this is the influence of of, uh, Keller, around this time, but he started to have other people writing in The Observer with him. Um, and there's a there's a regular column called Wrestling in Mexico by Steve Sims. Sims, yes. Um, he, uh, he, still, uh, he still helps contribute to The Observer to this day and also does a radio show every other week. So. Yeah, and the, the other thing that he brings in around this time is booking with Bodron, Jeff Bodron. Uh, who does? Who basically does like a kind of fantasy booking thing, week mm. week week by week, which is kind of a bit strange to see. Uh, and yeah, he gives him a couple of pages. Uh, you know, um, like <laughs> I mean, I haven't really been reading his angles and things, but um, like I can see that he's got one fantasy angle here involving Ricky Steamboat and Terry Taylor, where um, where um, he, uh, Terry Taylor's being mocked for his red rooster gimmick. Um, and Lance Russell is involved. Um, so this is the sort of thing. But it's, it's kind of weird to see that happening all the way back in 1990. So yeah. <laughs> there we are. Oh, yeah. Happy Booking's actually been... I was doing that when I started watching wrestling in 83. I only knew with the WWF at the time, so I would book the wrestlers that were there, but in different little scenarios, even as a kid. <laughs> there, there we go. I guess uh, Fancy Booking's been around a, a, a long time. Um so uh, Jeff, Jeff Bodron, he's not around anymore. Chad, I don't re- recognize that uh, name. No, he also contributed for the torch around this time too, though. So he was kind of back and forth. It, I, I reckon what must have happened is that guys must have started writing to Meltzer saying, can we write for the Observer as well? Like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, but it seems weird that all of a sudden he's got guest writers now because he didn't right. seem to, didn't have them all the way through the 80s from what I could see. Yeah. Well, he had one guy named Mondo Mike that would write in about like the AWA uh, shows at the Civic Center, and then when the WWF started running shows there at the Met Center, there was a guy Mondo Mike that had like a regular uh, column. It's kind of like a you know humor mixed in with the news of what was going on in the Twin Cities. So that yeah. was the only guy. I remember. Yeah, and I I always get the impression that. Um, you know the reports, like the week. I mean, we've talked about this before, but like, there's there's surely no way that um, Meltzer could see all of this wrestling in any given week. You know, when it's coming in from all around the country. So, there must have been other guys phoning in stuff for him as well, right? 
Well, again, when I, um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated came out with their weekly about 80, 89, um, I actually called them because I wanted to be a correspondent for the LA shows and I would call in the results and on a voicemail and I'd leave my, you know, the, uh, the results and they'd print them and they'd give me credit. And so I, you know, I actually talked to Bill after on the phone, I had called their, their office in Manhattan. And, and so I imagine it had to be the same for Meltzer where guys would call in results. He probably just didn't, you know, give them credit. That's uh, that's awesome. I was Bill Apter on the phone. Oh, he was a cool guy. I met him too at a couple conventions, but yeah, he was a real cool guy, real nice. I didn't try to get smart either. I didn't try to like talk, break kayfabe with him. And even though by that point, I kind of you know, I knew some of the behind the scenes stuff. But you know, he <laughs> just told me, yeah, just go give me a number to call in, and I called in. I I love the idea that Bill Apter would keep uh, kayfabe even in real life. <laughs> like he, uh... well, I mean, even in a shoot interview, he doesn't really like give you his. Ma- I mean, this guy worked for the you know the, that family of magazines, and he, I'm sure he has tons of stories. But even in a shoot interview, he doesn't really reveal too much. And fans, here's a look at the lineup for one week from tonight at Halloween Havoc. It's exclusively on pay per view. The eyes of the wrestling world are focused on Halloween Havoc, upcoming in Chicago, exclusively pay-per-view, Halloween, October 27th, Saturday night. It begins at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the NWA World Championship. Okay, so this is uh, October the 27th, 1990, from the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois. And Jim Ross is with Paulie Dangerously, who's dressed like Dracula, and um, JR has a hat on. Um, Paulie is kind of fiddling around with his fangs here, and um, they, they they really went for the Halloween angle this this year, Chad, didn't they? Yeah, it's uh, last Halloween Havoc had a little bit of that, but it's really uh, beefed up here. <laughs> and there, so now we get a turn over to Tony Schiavone, who's um, dressed as the Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> and um, he seems like he got this costume just from like a local corner store or something because um, have you, did you see his mask here it's just like a basic plastic uh, plastic mask that you'd get with like a you know the elastic band around the outside it's like the, the cheapest possible one like yeah he's not going point of creativity <laughs> Could, couldn't they have got him a better costume you know the uh, the TBS studios like they must have had a better phantom mask than that um He's with Ricky Morton, uh, who also has cut his hair, um, which was weird to see. Uh, I don't know if he'd been playing the Black Scorpion or if this was just Jim Hurd making everybody cut their hair at this time. And Tommy Rich. Because Jim Hurd wanted everybody to get out of the 80s hairstyles, right? It's 1990 now. <laughs> it's 1990. You have to have short hair, not not an 80s yeah. mullet. Uh, somebody should tell um, Ricky Morton that now, probably. <laughs> he actually wrestled last night real Did quickly. Did yeah. Uh, let, let me, I want to, let me uh, roll. You can introduce the first match. I want to roll down just this quick uh, gauntlet tag match that was in the show uh, last night. The The name of the car was WrestleCade. I have it pulled up. It was a gauntlet tag match. It started as the Headbangers versus the Rock and Roll Express. And the Rock and Roll Express were escorted by a, me valiant so then the rock and roll express advanced and they faced george south and manny fernandez and they won that match then they faced buff bagwell and scott steiner or, or rick steiner buff bagwell and rick steiner uh, buff bagwell and rick steiner prevailed 
and they and they faced the powers of pain who were escorted by Kevin Sullivan. The powers of pain won that match and then they faced a demolition hacks and smash. Oh my God. So this was in, uh, and then after that, both powers of pain and uh, demolition ended up getting counted out. Uh, and then, uh, two kind of local indie, uh, indie teams, the CNC Wrestle Factory and the Bravado Brothers finished it out, but this went 58 minutes total, this whole segment. Bloody hell. And um, yeah. Bill Eady is still wrestling? Bill Eady, Axe and Smash. Him and Dorsey. God, how old yeah. is Because he was old when he was in Demolition. Yeah, he has to be, uh, what, probably early 70s, right? God. Well, he was born in 47. No, he was born in what? He's 65. Yeah, 65. So. Jesus. Okay. Wow. And um, George South was on that card? Yes. Oh, bloody hell. Where, 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 where was that? Uh, I think it was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So George South's only 51. Can you believe that? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So. Doesn't look a day older than 55. <laughs> um, okay. I wonder who the MVP of that match was. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Um, somebody told me that Barbarian is in pretty good shape these days. Cause you said yes, he is. Uh, well, did you see that picture of, uh, did you see the picture of Scott Criscolo that he got with the uh, Heenan family? No, I haven't seen that. No. Yeah. You need to, you need to look that up on the uh, Facebook page. He got his picture with the, uh, with, uh, it was Orndorff, uh, King Kong Bundy, Bobby and, uh, and Barbarian and the Barbarian did look pretty good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, did, somebody said that he was, uh, probably doing some of the best work of his life a couple of years ago. So that was, uh, you know, interesting. Um, okay. So what, what happened here? Uh, Ricky Morton cut a decent promo about, uh, Robert Gibson being away. And, um, what was the angle here with Gibson being away? Chad, he, he was legit injured, injured, I believe. But yes, he was legitimately injured, but they kind of uh, played it up where he got uh, he got injured by actually the uh, Freebirds. But um, yeah, that was it. But yeah. that doesn't really play into the match here. And then, uh, well, Gary Michael Capetta is wearing a nice red tux. He's like dressed like the ringmaster, like the ringmaster of ceremonies here. And um, that's our first match. Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton taking on the Midnight Express. And the ring is kind of a weird red shade tonight. So what do we make of this opener? And I'll start with you first, Solomon. Well, I, you know, the Midnight Express, uh, you know, a lot of teams that came of age, like, you know, the mid-80s, early 80s, by this time they were fading, even the Road Warriors and Demolition. But the Midnight Express still looked, as good as ever with their moves, explosive. Um, and even though um, there wasn't a lot of tagging with Morton and Rich, Morton looked good in the role he's used to playing, which is the victim. And um, so I liked the, uh, I just liked the moves the Midnight Express uh, executed, the high-flying moves, especially the, was it the Alabama jammer, the rocket launcher from the top rope to the ramp. Yeah. And then, um, when Rich came in, I mean, talk about no, almost no reaction on the hot tag. And then he, you know, he did, he did that Fez press, which I've always hated that move. That move should have been left in the 70s. Um, and then, of course, the, you know, the Southern boys come down and distract 
uh, you know, they distract the Midnight Express and they end up having that finish where, you know, they they hit Cornetta and Rich Rich, I believe, you know, hits uh who was it, Lane or Eaton with the with the racket. Hit one of them with the racket, got got the pen. So I mean it was, I gave it uh I'm not really a star guy, but I gave it like two and a half stars just because the Midnight Express their moves and Morton looked good when he was in there, you know, playing the victim. And um you know, but Rich's hot tag was really flat, and Rich, to me, didn't add anything to the match. Chad? Uh, I actually have a, a, a pretty big soft spot for this opener, and uh, I, I think it's a great match to me. Uh, it, this is the last hurrah, really, for the Midnight Express. Uh, will be the last pay-per-view appearance for them as a team. And really, kind of suddenly, it's actually, besides the Super Bowl three Heavenly Bodies one-off, uh, this is the last time we see Jim Cornette. Which you, is, are you kidding? No, which is kind of shocking how it kind of happens like that. We don't see the Midnights again? No, this is it for them. Uh, and then Cornette. You're, you're breaking my heart, Chad. Yeah, what? so this is uh, this is oh, this is really their last raw, and um, I mean I think Ricky Morton and Bo- Bobby Eaton in this match is just outstanding, and uh, him and Morton, I know I I, I want to give credit to who said this, but when watching the footage, I think it was Dylan. I know Dylan really loves this match, and uh, Dylan says like you can really tell like that the Midnight's kind of saw the writing on the wall. Uh, with how they performed in this match and kind of left it all out there. So you did get like the rocket launcher onto the entrance way mm-hmm. and some kind of ridiculous bumps that they did together. Uh, but, but I just love this match and the way it built. You had your uh, typical kind of Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express build. Uh, Rich and Morton as a team didn't quite gel great together. But I, th- I thought they were fine, and like I said, Morton took the uh, lion's share of the work, which was good. Uh, my favorite spot was where they had the crisscross when Rich was in the ring, and uh, he goes outside and chases Cornette, and then Cornette jumps into the ring to escape from Rich, and uh, he ends up hitting Bobby Eaton. They run into each other. He was still doing the crisscross. Uh, which I really like that. And Cornette was active on the outside. He gets in a racket shot to the throat. And uh, they did some really, like, vicious offense, some typical vicious Midnight Express offense. And they did a couple of uh, hope spots where Eaton post himself on the outside and really kind of runs right into the post. And uh, then then you get the... uh, Hot tag to Tommy Rich, like Solomon said, but they're able to uh, they're able to get the pin, kind of reversal of fortune using Jim Cornette's racket because he was using it earlier, and uh, this time it turned against them, and so Rich and Morton were able to pick up the victory here in the opener. Well, one of the notes I got here is um, Jim Ross on commentary. We really had an info Cornette tonight. He calls him the bulbous one. He calls him a giant mold of Jello. There was a lot of weight jibes from. Uh, Ross directed towards Corny, which made me laugh quite a bit. Um, that rocket launcher onto the ramp, uh, amazing. And then, um, I mean, why? Yeah, you know, I've got a nice neckbreaker too. Yeah, but what I've got written here is, well, this is the Midnight Express working a face in peril sequence with Ricky Morton as the face in peril. What's there not to like here? Um, there was a really cool moment where Eaton hit the Alabama Jam, um, and then. 
rather than going for the cover, he wanted the ref to count him. Ten count. I loved that. I thought that was amazing. Um, it was like, right, we've kicked this guy in so badly, he's probably knocked out. So, um, And that's what I really love about the Midnight Express. They're always trying new shit that you haven't seen before. I think that's so cool. Like, how, how many Midnight matches have we seen now, Chad? And they, they never do the same match twice. Yeah, even though they they follow kind of the same, I guess, skeleton structure, they really know how to mix it up and make everything seem fresh. I, I think just Bob Eaton is like, people don't give him enough credit for being an, an imaginative worker. Like, he's he's innovative all the time. Like, he's always doing new, new cool stuff that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a really epic face and power sequence. And then... Yeah, I did think the the hot tag to, to Rich wasn't as hot as it could have been. And this is something I I've no really I've got for the next match, but um this crowd was not into this match, which uh didn't make it seem as good as it was, I think. I think this is one of those instances where the crowd was probably down on a match where they shouldn't have been because these guys were working so hard here. Um and uh I really I laughed when the Southern boys came out wearing the Cornets glasses. <laughs> um yeah, I, well, I've got this. I, I've just written what a match, at least four stars. So that's where I am. That's where I am on it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm at a four stars for me, and then uh, just quickly, I have a Keller's ranking, and he was at four stars as well. Um, and uh, Meltzer surprisingly is on three and a half. Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of kind of three to three and a quarter for this. He, he said that the first half of the match was not good. Um, there was a great Lucha Libre high spot with Bob Eaton, who was the best performer on the entire show, uh, and Morton. Um, but there was too much stalling in between. Uh, what else did he say? Um, he just he also said that uh, he seemed better rock and roll versus midnight matches. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> That's what he. That's what he says. Really. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty tough praise, though. They'd be like saying, "Oh, well, the uh, 1994." I mean, that'd, that'd almost be like saying the, uh, you know, the Flair Steamboat series, whichever your third favorite of that is of the 1989 series, you rank lower just because you've seen, you know, you rank significantly lower just because you've seen better matches, maybe a I- little bit. Yeah, I really like this match, and I'm just I'm absolutely devastated that that this is the last we're going to see the the, the midnights. That's ridiculous. I can't. Yeah. Be right. uh, so so the uh, the Midnight Express just real quickly, we can kind of put a bow on them in 1990. They had the uh, Rock and Roll Express Wrestle War match, which I know we both raved over. The uh, Capital Combat match, which we both liked. Um, I liked it more than you. The uh, the Southern Boys match at Great American Bash, which we both raved over, and now this match. So yeah. they definitely, I mean, to me, when I ranked all the matches to, of 1990, I had all four in my top 52. And I uh, actually had the Capital Combat match in this match back-to-back uh, with this match ahead. I didn't like the Capital Combat match quite as much on the uh, second watch through, and I like this match a little bit more. But even still, I think this is probably their third best pay-per-view match of the year, which really shows kind of the, uh, you know, for, for a tag team to have this, this is their last year together, for them to kind of go out with that, uh, top three matches of the year is uh, pretty something special, I think. Yeah, I I think they've 
been tremendous all the way through 1990 since turning heel again. I think their face run was phenomenal. I think they were great before that. Um, basically, this entire run that they've had in Crockett has been awesome from start to finish. Yes. Um, and I say that without hesitation. Um, the matches we watched on TV were great, Chad. Um, yeah. Fantastic matches were great. Rock and Roll's matches were great. I mean, there's nothing like... I think they are, you know, they're one team whose rep is deserved. And I think there are plenty yeah, of... Yeah, you could take this version of the Midnight Express 1990 and put them back in, in 86, 87, and they don't lose anything. I mean, that's what's uncommon, because most of the teams by... 80s teams by this point were fading or broken up or past their prime. Yeah, so I want to... When we finish this show, Chad, I'm going to be on the phone to... Evil Jim Hurd, and I'm going to be saying, "What are you doing? You're making a big <laughs> mistake here. Do not let these guys go." <laughs> uh, I know Eaton stays, so at least that's some solace, right? But still, yes, it's it's still like what you can't let these guys go. They're so good, um, and I, I do think that tag, tag teams are one area where you do get guys who are overrated. Um, I think a lot of these. I mean, it's been a talking point on the board recently. A lot of those '80s tag teams from the WF are overrated in my view. Um, but the Midnight's are not one of them. They're, they deserve every single bit of praise that they get in my view. Um, do, do you know what I mean though, Chad, by that? Yeah, I don't want to start a, uh, <laughs> you know, we've, we've went through that, but uh, I, don't, I don't think there's, I mean, for me personally, there's not too many heart foundation matches I can think right offhand that I'd put above this one. Uh, maybe the Brain Buster SummerSlam match. Uh, I, I, I really like their match in uh, October 1990, ironically enough, versus the Rockers. But, uh, but those are kind of, and then maybe one of the uh, Killer Bees or Islander matches. Those are kind of the only ones that uh, right offhand uh, – because to me, this is better than the uh, SummerSlam 90 demolition match. I, d- I did not like that match when I watched it again that much. I thought it was a good match, but I like this better. And, but you're just talking about this one match, Chad. If you had, like, the best of the Midnight Express, they've got, like... Yeah, that's that's what 10, I kind of wanted to... Yeah, I wanted to use that as a template, because that's what I'm saying. Like, I think maybe the Hart Foundation had... If, you, if I'm being generous... I can maybe think of four matches better than this as a tag team. And like we said, this was at best the third best uh, Midnight Express match of 1990. So right. there you have it. And I, well, I think Midnight's probably have 15 matches better than this, just in Crockett. That's without yeah. bringing in Mid-South and all, you know, all their other stuff. So Right. Uh, yeah, I couldn't be bigger on them, and I I am devastated that they're that they're going here. Almost as upset as when Tud when uh, Tully left, Chad. Yeah. So um, anyway, we go from that to the Wicked Witch now. Uh, <laughs> who uh, was this, Missy Hyatt? Yes, it was yeah. Missy. Yeah. This was atrocious. Uh, anything else to say? No. I never liked her even in the prime. <laughs> Well, I mean, she certainly did look like a witch, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah well, I was one for a while. I was like, "Who is this?" And I, 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 my first thought was obviously, "Well, this is Missy Hyatt." But I did like for about a minute or so. I thought it might be um, Cat, you know, that woman that Jerry Jerry Lawler was involved uh-huh. with, Stacy, yeah, yeah Stacy Carter, because she had that same like straight black hair. 
she was obviously wearing a wig. Hi, it was. So, anyway, let's move on. Um, so, with his new short hair, Wilds Bill Irwin now taking on Terry Taylor. Uh, and apparently this match had gone through several different iterations, like the, the several different guys were earmarked to face Taylor here um, before they brought in uh, Irwin. Um, and uh, a, a Jack Brickhouse joins the booth. Um, and he seems to be there mainly to shill the new Chicago slot. Um, Jack Brickhouse, Chad? Yes, he is a uh, Chicago-oriented commentator. He was an American sportscaster, did play-by-play of the Chicago Cubs from uh, 1948 to 1981 uh, and, until, uh, I guess, uh, Harry Carey then took over from him. He was uh, Harry Carey's predecessor. So He looks like he was in his 70s here at the very, uh, the very youngest to me uh let's see when he was he was born 1917 so yeah he would have been uh 73 here (laughs) i actually lived in 1998 so he lasted a while wow 1917 1917 was born yeah well he certainly knew his wrestling history on this uh particular i mean he says at one point um, and uh, the highlight of this match for me was when he said wrestling is over 5,000 years old and then Paulie Dangerously came in and he said yes and Gordon Soley's been around for all but three or four of them <laughs> yeah one of Paulie's only one of his only funny lines that night but it was funny <laughs> um, yeah I mean Brickhouse uh, run down a pile of historical names here I thought it was a pretty nice touch to have this guy on it's interesting yeah, he mentioned yeah. like everybody who's who was anybody in the game, right? Um, so, what did you make of this uh, particular match, uh, Chad? There was a long, boring chant for Irwin's chin lock. I noticed they were really shitting on this match. Yeah, the the uh, crowd was not digging this match, and uh, I, I like this match a decent. I mean, I'm not. I would say this match was uh, serviceable to good. And it, it was very basic in the way it was worked, and it went around 12 minutes. Um, so there wasn't a, a ton of excitement to the way this match was worked, but uh, but the, there was uh, good good solid work without. Like I think you could have, if you're a, a trainee or something like that, I think you could look to this match and see like a very good kind of face heel basic narrative match, second match on the show. They didn't try to reinvent the wheel but they came out there and gave a good performance Irwin, i think this is the best we've seen him look i mean i've oh, yeah. we've both been down on him here he was not yelling like he sometimes wants to do and and uh that was frustrating and then also he was uh, more in control of himself less sloppy uh he gave a, a good tombstone at the very end and then at the, uh, the the finish here was he actually gets a spine buster, but he gets a very uh, arrogant cover, and Taylor is able to um, to kind of roll him up in a crucifix pinning combination and pick up the win. So yeah. I thought this was uh, good, solid stuff, actually. Yeah, I, I like that finish a good bit, actually. Uh, Solomon, any thoughts? Um, it was, uh, you know, it was, to me, it was kind of uh, just a, a blah match. I mean, they didn't do anything egregious. I mean, the moves were smooth. Terry Taylor's always been a smooth worker. Um, 
And um, I mean, it was it was for me. It was just kind of like a you know, go get popcorn match. Nothing bad, but nothing that stood out. Um, and the crowd wasn't into it, so that's not a good thing either. When you're, the crowd's chanting boring, so um, I'm just kind of uh, blah about the match. See, I, I think this is very un. I think that's a little bit un- like my view is that that's all quite unfair on the match. Um, like, okay, it's been put in the part of the card where people would go and get popcorn you're right um but i mean we got some really good action here uh taylor was on like he hit belly to back suplex we got that uh, tombstone from irwin um and like there's a really nice snap suplex by taylor at one point he gave us a neck breaker big on anderson spine buster it's like there was a this was a decent amount of action and the crowd were basically no selling all of this and i've just um written in my notes here I mean, was Chicago still bitter about 1987? You know, like, they shit on two matches in a row now. Like, what's the deal? Chicago? <laughs> fans by that point, you know, non-WWF fans by that point were a little, uh, I just say, um, tainted as far as they weren't, they weren't easy to please a lot, you know, the hardcore fans at this point in time. So you have Taylor, who's, you know, your white meat baby face, and you have Bill Irwin, and people just weren't at that by that point in time excited for for a Terry Taylor match the way they were maybe five years ago in Mid South or you know Crockett he just didn't have that type of uh, following the way he had before so I think maybe people saw this as just kind of a you know just a filler match to get to the next you know the next big match on the card so yeah I mean the problem was that the people didn't give a shit but I mean if you tried to like we actually good though don't get me wrong. I, I've written in my notes here that I think this is a three-star match at least. Chad, where did you go on it? Mm, I didn't go that high. I went about two and a half. Uh, and Solomon, presumably you're lower than that again. Yeah, star. Two, I mean, not a star. Two stars, sorry. I mean, uh, so th- this this is interesting, though, because um, Meltzer says, you know, two, this was, he said... Too bad. Technically, this was a very good match. Great execution, good timing, good moves, lots of great near falls. It's really too bad because it didn't matter what they did. To the vast, vast majority of the audience, the match never had a chance. Two two and three-quarter stars, and then he's written in brackets, the work was well above three stars, but the lack of crowd reaction hurt, and in fact, the announcers didn't really even call the match. Um, So, that was, uh, like, so that's an example of Meltzer allowing the crowd to lower his rating on the match. That's interesting to me. Because, like, if, if he was watching that match in a vacuum, he would have given it over three stars. Um, I mean, I know we've talked about it, Chad, but uh, do, you, do you disagree with him? You, you don't think the match on its own, like, if you ignore the crowd, was over three stars? I don't think that... I don't think a... Uh, I mean, he said well over three stars. I mean, I, I can see... I mean, you get so arbitrary with the star ratings. So I could maybe see an argument of giving like a, a quarter star bump up or down based on crowd reaction. I can't see a situation where, like for me, I'd say, oh, this was a two and a half star match, but only because the crowd was bad. If the crowd was great, it'd be like three and a half. Like that, I, I, and I, I mean, like me personally, I don't take crowd, you know, I'm very minimal and taking uh, crowd, you know, what the crowd's doing into effect. But even 
uh, like I would say anything reasonable would only be like a quarter star. So I don't think it should make a huge difference. Okay. Yeah, for me, I guess I, I fall a little bit on Mal- with Meltzer because I do. Um, I don't think they had to be hot for this match because this is not the type of match you'd be hot for based on the importance it has on the card. But uh, you would like to still see a match like this have you know give the fans some enjoyment. Um, so I do kind of let you know how it goes over with the crowd influence me a bit. Um, so that's kind of that was my take on giving it only two stars. Yeah, I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer on this. I, I just, it's just an interesting thing that keeps on coming up and up. Like, on, on the other show I do, uh, Titans of Wrestling, as you, as you guys know, you know, uh, Johnny and uh, Kelly in particular are guys who let the crowd really kind of push their rating. You know, those guys don't give out stars, but if the crowd is hot, they, you know, they don't believe there's any such thing as a wrong crowd. Whereas, whereas I think the crowd were... were a bit harsh to these guys here that they should like um okay let's uh let's move on but like for me that's the best i've seen terry taylor in some time yeah best terry taylor match uh um tony shivani's with sting and um the crowd pops for him and uh uh, yeah i've just got another note about cheap tony's mask is here (laughs) um and then the black scorpion comes out in (laughs) one of the Chad, I, I'm not. Can you explain what happens during this? Uh... Yeah, this is this is one of the more infamous WrestleCrab WCW moments of all time. First of all, Sting fumbles over his promo. Uh, <laughs> he says, "Like you, uh, he does." He says, "He he tells Sid to not let his butt fumble over his you know what when he uh, meant to say mouth, and then he ends up correcting himself." Uh, and then the Black Scorpion emerges, grabs. Uh, like Sting is on a platform off to the entranceway. Black Scorpion emerges on the entranceway, has a few words for Sting, grabs a, a female WCW crew member, uh, drags her to the other side of the entranceway where there's a inexplicably platform set up, which, you know, nobody can explain why this platform was set up here except that the Black Scorpion must have told WCW production that he was going to do a, a magic trick, and uh, they said okay, and they set it up for him. Like, there's no other logical reason why this is here. But anyway, so so Scorpion and the girl come up. The curtain comes up. Sting first gets held back by one very lowly short security guard. Is finally able to break through. Uh, with a concerned look on his eye, he uh, goes and tears down the curtain, and the black scorpion has vanished with the crew member. And uh, then, off to where Sting was giving the interview, all of a sudden, the black scorpion emerges with this WCW crew member, and then uh, Sting looks completely baffled by this, and the uh, black scorpion scurries away. So this is one of the... I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just completely dumb and asinine. Uh, you do get this great uh, you when they go back to the commentary, like uh, Paul Paul's uh, overselling of it is completely ridiculous and over the top, and he, he decides, definitely tongue in cheek. He decides to sell it as if he's Porky Pig. 
You know, Porky Pig from yeah. the, he's, he's doing all that like stuttering stuff, but like yes, yes, so. he, it's. It, I mean, you. It was him. I'm. I'm certain this was his version of him just crapping on the angle overall with the overselling. But uh, this, I, I mean, I don't know why anybody thought this was a good idea. This, this was straight up five year old birthday party magic tricks. This was a total shower of shit. And I, I tell you, I, one of my biggest problems with it, okay, is that the guy that they had playing the scorpion didn't move like the scorpion. He moved like a light entertainer, right? He he moved like the guy who'd come to your five-year-old's party and do yeah, a magic trick. Yeah. Um, also, the woman clearly was like an acrobat or something. Like she clearly yes. she clearly was a paid actress of some sort. So oh, it was just awful. It, like it, it was the most horrible thing I've ever seen. I think I can I can remember seeing on a wrestling show. I hated it. I hated every second of it. <laughs> it's like, really yeah, bad. yeah, it was horrible. And the one thing I you know, in regards to Sting's promo, it's you know, he, I was such a mark for Sting at the time. I mean, he had the look, he had a great presence, but you know, I guess you know, Sting's not going to be one of those guys that's going to talk you into the building if you're on the edge of going to a you know to buying tickets to the arena to see him in the main event. He's you're going to go because you're going to go, but it's not because he's going to talk to you. And there's nothing about his promos that make you want to see him other than you already know he's a great athlete. I mean, he's, you know, he's got the look and he's got a lot of energy, but just it's amazing that after uh, being in the NWA since like, what was the 87, 88, when he had that big match with Flair, he hadn't developed his promo skills and he's the top guy now. Uh, I think you're right there. He's not a very good promo. I think we've seen that week after week, Chad, haven't we? That he's not. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, like, let, let's even pretend for a second that he did. Let's say you were on the edge. Am I going to come to the next NWA show? Sting gives that promo. And then you see the Black Scorpion stuff. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would have changed my mind back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <That> was awful. <laughs> so talking about real star power now in 1990 it's the candy man fred armstrong taking on jw storm <laughs> um who is jw storm he was uh one of the members of the uh maximum overdrive team that lost to the steiners i, I think it's a bit strange that he didn't have a bigger career you know because he's a big guy he's well built Seems all right. It's weird. What what happened to him? Well, I mean, he sucks. <laughs> so that's part of it. But... Well, yeah, but that never stopped like Sid or. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think he's has as much. Uh, I don't think he has as much like charisma as Sid. Um, I can't think of many. I guess really. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think he kind of got the career he deserved, probably. Uh, Solomon, Candyman versus Storm. Well, one, I mean, what, what was Brad Armstrong wearing? Is that like the Candyman's gimmick? Uh, like his tights? He's got to wear kind of <laughs> like the Candyman tights. Um, I, I know who got those tights. Solomon, I was, I was just going to say that um, I think he gave those tights to Virgil a couple of years later. <laughs> I give a, you get away? I think he gave those tights to Virgil a couple of years later. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, the match. J.W. Storm, one thing I noticed about him, he did have, you know, obviously he had good power moves. He just looked like the typical green uh, big guy that were, you know, falling out of the sky in the, in the late 80s. But he, uh, you know, he had some good power moves. So I could see where people think he had potential. But one thing I noticed, you know, he is a big guy, but he seems a little like when I played football, we'd call it light in the ass. Like the guy's was developed. His upper body was developed. He seemed to have very small legs, uh, which is weird for a wrestler. But, uh, I mean, you know, it was just... You know, Brad Armstrong got the pin, and it was, you know, just a, again, just another filler match. And it was, a, you know, your typical big green muscle guy. I mean, he had some, you know, he, if he would have stayed and developed, I mean, I think he could have made something of himself. I don't know his career trajectory after this because I don't know much about him. But, I mean, he was just a, you know, big guy, and, and it was a nice little match. Nothing bad, real bad about it for who was in it. I mean, Brad Armstrong's a good worker, but. He's working with the guy that has limitations, got the pin, and it was okay. Just a star and a half. He, he, he did give us like a snap suplex, a power slam, a gut wrench suplex, and all of this sort of stuff. But yeah, I, he had good explosive moves. I mean, that's 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 quite a lot of stuff. But then I, I guess you could see that at most indie shows these days, Chad, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a good tidbit on J.W. Storm. Uh, he he became a born again Christian in 2002, an ordained minister. He now tours the United States with his ultimate strength show that combines preaching with feats of strength, such as breaking through a stack of concrete blocks. So that's uh, what he's up to these days. So so how does that how does that work? He 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 um so, you know he starts the prayer, Our Father. And then he chops the blocks, and then he gets to the end and says, Amen. I mean, what the hell? Uh, I would basically think, like, through the power of Christ, he's able to uh, oh, to uh, break through I the country. I remember those shows back in the day on, like, UHF TV. Like, here in L.A., they'd have those, like, power, like, you know, the, the, the Christian uh, services with these guys breaking boards and stuff. Oh, God. Okay. Um, any... Further thoughts on this, Chad? Uh, match sucks. Five minutes of Storm dominating Armstrong cradles and pins him, and uh, he Storm locked on a chin lock. They said he was undefeated coming in, so this was his first pinfall loss in singles competition. Uh, I, I, I didn't like this match. Gave it a star. What about Chris, that they said he, he was a boxer and he knocked a guy out with 26 seconds left in fight, then drove across town to Minneapolis and pinned the guy in a wrestling match. Yeah. Um, they, they, they basically booked this as, a, as like a big upset, right? This match is yes. like, uh, oh, wow, look at Armstrong got this win. Um, so I thought the booking was quite cool here. Um, the, the way that they made it seem like an upset. Um, Meltzer says here, um, Storm has a lot of potential, but it's so green right now. Do you agree with that? <laughs> I guess you've got the benefit of hide hindsight, but can you see the potential in him? No, I, I, I haven't. I have not. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's 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 move on here because what uh, did he give that? Did he give oh, it? He gave it a one and a quarter star. See, Keller gave that two stars, which I thought was interesting. It's quite generous. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the juicer is out now, dressed as a court <laughs> jester, and he's throwing candy and stuff into the crowd. Who's he's the, not alone. 
Oh, and uh, Norman is with him, right? Yes, he is. No, the pumpkin. How, like... Dressed as a pumpkin, yes. <laughs> hasn't Norman been fired yet? Like, I thought he left ages ago. What's he still doing <laughs> hanging around? It's weird. <laughs> Did they rehire him without me noticing, or... Like... I think, I mean, he'd certainly been de-pushed, but yeah, he was still hanging out here. You know, Iron Sheik is still around, right? Oh, God. <laughs> He's still working the house shows. Um, anyway, uh, the uh, Master Blasters now taking on the Southern Boys. And Blade is making his debut here. Yes. Uh, JR tells us that Wrestling Rapid Magazine gave the Southern Boys an award. And he doesn't like it. Um, now, what happened uh, during this match is that... Um, Oh, I should have mentioned, just before this match, Jim Cornette uh, had an interview with Tony Schiavone, and he said that he's going to go down to the booth. And after Cornette says that, uh, Paulie Dangerously is like, what? Cornette's coming to the booth? What? Why? I'm already the colour commentator here, type thing. And I thought it was absolutely awesome during this that Cornette and Paulie kept their old rivalry going. Because obviously they'd had that feud in 1989, and there was like no love lost here, type thing, even though they're both yeah. heels. I loved that. And then Cornette came in uh, to do commentary on this match. And um, he claims he's done some research on the Southern Boys family tree. And he brings up all this stuff that they were deserters, that um, <laughs> that Bob Armstrong got kicked out with the Marines for hiding in the latrine and was known as the chicken of the seas. <laughs> he says that there was an Uncle Charlie Armstrong who was in the Navy and that their whole family were gypsies, cowards and thieves. And then he accuses the Smothers family of wearing women's clothing. And he said, why do you think they call him Tracy? <laughs> his, um, his uncle's name was Ethel. <laughs> and then he um, and then he's like has done research into his own family tree. Um, and basically the Connects were like great during the Civil War. And then he uses this as a chance to take digs at the North as well. So there's a lot of North and South bickering going on between Cornette and Heyman. And I thought that the, all of this stuff on commentary was just awesome, awesome stuff. Yeah, Paul got another funny line. His second one of the night where he said, oh, you're, you're from Kentucky, so your family tree must be a branch. <laughs> um, yeah, I I, uh, I, thought all of that stuff with Cornette was awesome. And, uh, and there was a match that took place. So um, I didn't really bother. Like, I was just taken with the commentary. So did any, Chad, what do you think of the match? Uh, well, real quickly, too, in Cornette's promo, he also did a dig on the uh, main event angle because he said he didn't know the Black Scorpion was Harry Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> so he got the shit on that, which I thought was, you know, typical. You know, Cornette, I think, could see the writing on the wall at this point, so he was just kind of letting it go. Uh, the match, actually, I thought was mm, okay, I guess. I think the Master Blasters were... Pretty much anything they did here was an improvement over their last performance. Uh, Steele looked uh, looked pretty good, uh, better than he did last time. Blade was an improvement over the guy that wrestled one match and quit that I've already forgot his name. Iron, uh, yeah, Iron, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I mean it was it was a pretty basic match. I mean uh, Steve Armstrong hit a great drop kick on Steele. And uh, he kind of kicked both of them off, and then they they got the control on Tracy Smothers, and 
did some pretty generic power moves, and it wasn't that great. There was one ridiculous spot where Nick Patrick held back Nash. Yeah, which I thought was just absolutely absurd. But uh, eventually everything kind of breaks down and uh, Cornette gets involved with the match and then uh, pulls pulls the leg off of a cover attempt by the uh, Southern Boys and then Steele's able to clothesline uh, Scott Arm- uh, Steve Armstrong into the racket, into Cornette's racket up on the apron, uh, giving the Master Blasters the win. Yeah, um, any further thoughts, Solomon? Well, yeah, I thought that spot was ridiculous, too, and it didn't even look like uh, Nash was trying real hard to, like, get past him. It, that was, it looked like he was standing around for a while, too, during the finish. Yeah, like, it, he just standing around in the ring, not doing anything, but you could see the potential that he had and some of the moves that he executed, the power moves, so you see that there was some type of aptitude for, for the short time he'd been in the business. I've I, I got the exact same note here. Very messy finish with Nash just standing there waiting for the cue. I've got to put it down to greenness on his part. Just very green. Um, yeah. Not a lot. I, I thought Cornette was the was the main. I think this match seemed to be there just for the Cornette stuff. In my, like, this match seemed to be there to advance the Southern Boys versus Cornette angle to me. Right. Would you agree with that? The match was just there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The match was kind of a secondary vehicle uh, behind the Southern Boys versus Cornette, and then the Master Blasters kind of starting to get over, a little, or you know, pushing them a little bit. Now, Chad, I have to. Sorry, one thing to the commentary about Paulie and Cornette having this rivalry is it was kind of contradictory when I guess uh, they're spanking Cornette, and then Paulie's, you know, screaming, "Where's the Midnight Express?" Well, I just thought that you were kind of at odds with this guy, and now you're hoping that his team comes and rescues him. So I got that kind of was a little contradictory. Yeah, and I, I was just going to ask you, Chad, um, when they were bickering over the North-South thing, did you find yourself kind of siding with Corny as a boy from Georgia? <laughs> Cornette definitely hates the North. Uh, I don't have, I guess, any huge problems with... Uh, uh, I mean, anybody from the... I do think there's a certain prejudice from the North against uh, anybody from the South or Southern accent, but that kind of permeates. And then there's also prejudice from the South for uh, kind of some Northern people, too. So it's a give and take. Did, uh, was Heyman pushing your buttons on the show? Because he kept on going on about, like, you know, New York and kept on, like, having a lot of Northern bias on this show. Yeah, uh, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> Okay, um, so, and uh, presumably you're uh, neutral in all of that, Solomon, being in L.A. Being yeah, we're kind of like coast versus West Coast, so the North and South is <laughs> kind of their own rivalry. We have, here in L.A., we have like a rivalry with the East Coast, which is like New York and stuff. And, you know, I guess that started with the gangster rap and all that. Biggie, so Biggie, kind of, Biggie and Tupac, right? Yeah, even before that, like N.W.A. and, uh, you know, all the you know, like public enemy and all that stuff, and... Uh, yeah, so it's kind of like watching it from afar, you know, north versus south, it's just, it's kind of funny, you know, it's kind of like you have, even to this day, even though things have kind of like, are more uh, homogenized, you still have that kind of type of, uh, you know, in football, like college football, it's like the south, the SEC uh, against the Big Ten and the Pac-10, so there's still kind of that geographical pride that people take where they're from. Oh, okay, well... 
the next match now is the Renegade Warriors, who are um, Chris and Mark Youngblood. And when they first ran out, I was hoping, oh, this could be interesting, evil Native American gimmick, evil Red Indians, you know? But they didn't do it that way, because they're basically baby faces, disappointingly. And um, they're taking on um, the fabulous Freebirds. And oh my God, what does Jimmy Garvin look like tonight? He's a fat man in mascara and eyeliner. <laughs> They've got Rocky King as their roadie now. Um, and they're calling him Little Richard. Uh, JR calls him a flunky. And then, as if things couldn't get any worse for the Freebirds, Hayes is wearing those awful tights again. The same spangly gold, gold ones that he was a few weeks ago. And, um, Christ, uh, Solomon, what do you think of this match? Well, actually, you know what, I thought there was some, you know, good moves in the match. Uh, I don't think it was a bad match inside the ring. The crowd obviously couldn't stand the, um, the Renegade Warriors and were completely behind the Freebirds. Yeah. But I didn't think it was bad as far as, like, Michael Hayes, I think, is still, um, I've, I've always thought he was a good worker, even though, uh, people said he was kind of like the weak spot in the Freebirds. And even the Renegade Warriors, I mean, they had uh, they had some uh, some good moves. Um, I will say that the Freebirds outfits look awful. And Jimmy Garvin, if you're going to put makeup on, make sure you at least dye your beard. His beard was like white. It's like this dude looked like a, a, a 80s roadies reject of a you know heavy metal band. But, but there was a good double clothesline. I, th- I think there was a good double clothesline by uh, the Youngbloods. And um, uh, the problem was that. You know, you you have a crowd that is treating the Freebirds like they're the baby faces, and they're treating the baby faces like the Hills. And again, uh, I mean, they cropped, they popped huge for the Birds win, and they were flat for um, the hot tag for the Renegades, just yeah. completely flat, even worse than when Rich tagged in for Morton in the in the earlier match. Um, so yeah, I mean, that kind of it's just never good when the Hills are being overwhelmingly cheered by the fans. Um, I gave this actually two stars. Um, you know, the, you know, I I'd, I'd like the work in the ring. I'm not gonna lie. Um, Chad, I did not like the work in the <laughs> ring. Um, I thought the the uh, Renegade Warriors they did get a bad shake, but uh, they they botched. I don't even know which one it was, but he botched the head scissors headlock takeover spot, and from there there was just. I mean, once the uh, once Hayes took over with that left hand and then the back suplex, there was nothing going on. Like, I, I mean, there was just nothing that happened. Like, the crowd would chant for uh, DDT and stuff like that. But, I mean, there was this uh, control segment was literally like a chin lock or something like that. And uh, we finally get the hot tag to no reaction whatsoever after Hayes inexplicably goes to the top rope. Uh, little Richard gets in the ring and distracts uh, one of the members of the Renegade Warriors, and Hayes gets the DDT, giving the uh, Freebirds a win to an actual pretty decent pop. But I thought the match was uh, dreadful, and it's 17 minutes, way too long. Um, well, I don't know what happened uh, during this match. I don't know if I was like if I drifted off or like I started daydreaming or something. But at one point, Capetta made a 15-minute call. And I was like... Yeah, it was way early. That call was way early. I was early. like, what? I've been watching this match for about two minutes. Well, what's happened here? Um, yeah, I marked that down. That was probably... It was like seven or so minutes in. Yeah, that was way early, yeah. right? But it, it did actually go 17 minutes. 
Yes, uh, 17 minutes officially. Um, we got probably the worst hip toss I've ever seen from Chris Youngblood early on in this match. Um, atrocious. The, 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 the highlight of it for me was um, Paul Heyman going on a rant about the youth of today. And he kept on working this angle about how the young blood are disrespecting the the Freebirds. And um, him and Jim Ross were really bickering on this show a lot. And I thought that Ross yeah. was gonna, I thought that Ross was gonna hit him at one point. And I kind of liked that. I thought they were keeping things interesting for me. <laughs> um, Actually I noted that too, but I, I'm kind of the opposite. I don't like when um I like heel commentators, but I don't like it when they're over the top. And same thing with even the play by play guy. It's like I I know that the play-by-play guy's usually going to side with the baby faces because that's what, you know, he'll break rules, so they got to point that out. But I just thought it was too over-the-top, kind of reminded me, and I know a lot of people like the combination of Monsoon and Enon, but I didn't because it's just too too over-the-top. I like I like it when it's more subtle, when, the you know, the heel commentator is a little more subtle, and they're still going to compliment the baby faces, but, that, but yet, you know, they're siding with the hills. What do you think, Chad? Because I, I was pretty high on this bickering. <laughs> I, I like the chemistry between them. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> um, I I did like it when uh, Hayes hit the punch and Garvin went into the belly to back. I thought that looked pretty neat. Um, but all in all, I thought the young bloods were pretty terrible. Um, and uh, well, Jimmy Garvin, I talked about before. The finish to this match was horrible. I don't know why. Like Little Richard looked completely out of place. It was bad. Um, and interestingly, Meltzer gives this match minus two stars. Yeah, Keller gives this a star and three quarters, which I thought was very, very generous. Minus two stars a bit harsh, though? Well, I mean, I don't give negative stars, like I said. So I gave this uh, a half a star. So that's pretty bad. That's a worst match of the year candidate for me. Incidentally, one star for the previous match, the, the Southern Boys match. Yeah. From- um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it was, um, I, I don't want to see the Young Bloods again, basically. It was my verdict on that match. I thought they were bad. And, uh, well, I, I think Michael Hayes should just go solo at this point in his career. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, apparently Jimmy Garvin was working that match with a, with a bad knee. So, um, apparently he's got a legit excuse. Um, but then I've seen his other matches in 1990, so I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so, um, moving on then, because that was, uh, that was, well, two of us think it was bad, and I guess Keller's with you, Solomon. <laughs> so you've got Keller on your side. Um, yeah, I mean, I will, I will say this though: the Freebirds do look like, especially Jimmy Garvin, they look like uh, you know just relics from the mid early 80s. I mean, it's. You're right. I mean, I like the I like the combination in '89, like when they did the war games and, and that. But you know, by this point, you know, it's just the, the games passing by gimmick wise. You know, it's time to drop the whole we're rocker, you know, heavy metal guys type thing and just kind of, you know, yeah. You know, when you're doing when you look awful like that, it's time to change your gimmick. At least alter it a little bit to be more modern. Yeah, yeah. I I actually think that Jimmy Garvin has no use anymore. Like, I think he's completely just done. And, hit, like, why anybody would allow him to go on TV looking like he did tonight, I, I have no idea. Um, so, I mean, no, seriously, though, Evil Jim Hurd's there telling Ric Flair and other guys to cut their hair. What about Jimmy Garvin? Like, just sort yourself out. <laughs> like, yeah, like, well, if you're going to do that gimmick, dye your beard, man, so you don't look like you're 45. 
yeah, it's 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 weird, like uh, how they how he could be so caught up on stuff like hair length, but then let that go on TV. Very strange. Um, anyway, uh, Tony Schiavone's with the Horseman now, and Arn is wearing his glasses, which I always love. And they they cut a few promos here. Um, any comments on the promos, or shall I move on? Yeah, nothing big. Yeah, it's weird. Like, all the way through 1990, Chad, the promos have not been very unremarkable from everybody, really. It's just like, they're probably not given long enough, maybe. Or there's too many of them. Combination of those two things. Um, But the next match now, for the US titles, uh, the Nasty Boys taking on the Steiner Brothers. And, uh, Chad, I'll start with you. This is uh, one of my... Probably one of my favorite matches of all time, actually. Uh, we get a huge brawl to break out to start. Uh, the chair shots Thags gives Scott on the back of the head is absolutely sick. And then uh, almost immediately after that, or about a minute after that, Scott hits the super belly-to-belly from the second rope. Uh, we get an insane top rope bulldog. Uh, but then the Nasties take over, working over the back after a chair shot to the back. So the first, like, three to four minutes is just straight, like, bomb throwing. Uh, and then the Nasties take over with a control sequence, and they do a really good job, like, making this more of a traditional-type tag with their, you know, clunky offense. But, I, you know, nothing was uh, botched to me. And everything, they uh, kind of interacted and interspersed some really good offense here. A gut wrench suplex, a spike pile driver, uh, some stuff like that. Rick finally gets pissed off, and this was the Rick Steiner that I like, where he's like the defendant, uh, pissed off older brother instead of the dumb baby face. Uh, so he hits a chair, he, he hits him with a chair to kind of turn the tide, but then the Nasties are still able to. Uh, Gain control. They continue to work on the back with a bear hug and a Boston crab. And then we get another really good uh, kind of cutoff spot where Scott is able to push off. I think it was Sags in the Boston crab, but uh, they still cut him off. Finally, we get the big hot attack to a good pop, and we get uh, some really heated action between the teams. Double clothesline from Rick. And uh, then we get a Frankensteiner that was uh, very well executed. Well, I don't know about well executed, but it dumped him right on top of his head. And uh, that gets the win for the Steiner brothers. Just a great match. Like, it intersperses great spots, but also maintains a, a, a tag structure. And to me, this is like the optimum Steiner brothers match. And it's uh, my favorite Steiner brothers match of all time. Wow. Uh, Solomon, do you agree with that? I totally agree with that, and I wrote a lot of that down on the, the explosive power moves, the spike pile driver on Scott, um, you know, the uh, the double, I think it was a double Steiner line from the top rope, and then you had, um, you know, the the brawling at the beginning, and then, of course, the superplex, or what do, what do they call that nowadays, but I, in my days it was the super, no, belly to belly from Scott on uh, Sags, from the, um, I was right after that, kind of that brawling segment, Yeah, and I like, uh, you know, the Nasty Boys. This is a team. I actually started watching them in 88 in the AWA when I was watching ESPN, and I hated them. And then now going back in time to watch them, it's like, you know, I slept on them because I was really impressed with them, not only their uh, brawling, but actually the, their execution and moves. And, you know, the Steiners were over here. Even Scott, I noted how he played 
the victim pretty well, and you don't think of Scott Steiner's being able to play, you know, a sympathetic uh, baby face, but I thought he played the victim well when, when the Nasty Boys had control on him. So, um, you know, I love the match. I gave it four stars. It was my favorite match on the card. Yeah, well, I mean, not, you talked about execution. I thought the side slam that Nobbs hit was really neat. He had a great power slam on Scott Steiner. Um, I thought the commentators emphasized the work on Scott's lower back really well because there was good focus during that segment. Um, the uh, All of the, like, there were so many sick spots during this, like the uh, the belly-to-belly superplex, awesome. Um, the bulldog from the top rope. Did you see that move? Uh, Rick, yeah. That was awesome. Um, the moment where uh, Rick Steiner hit Sags with that chair, man, did he hit him hard. And then he was busted open and covered with blood. Um, I don't know if they were still doing their no blood policy at this point, but um, we certainly saw some color here. The spike pile driver. I mean, Christ, there was so much going on in this match. Um, and it had a really good structure, like you said, Chad. So I, I've just written here, what a match, four and a half stars from me. Tr- terrific, like amazing match. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you know, that wasn't a superplex, I'm sorry, the belly to belly off, uh, off the second rope by Scott on stage. This is a superplex, I forgot that, you know, that was yeah. a working move. Um, so, I mean, Meltzer, surprisingly here, Chad, is really low. Three and three quarters. Very stingy, I thought. Yeah, uh, me and Keller both are at four and a half with you. Four, yeah, I think four and a half is about right. Uh, it's one of the best matches I've seen in a in a while, especially like that's the match that you want out of the Steiners, right? Is a match like that, you know? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess I kind of don't get the criticism for this match. I mean, you can be down on them, um, on the Nasty Boys, but here they were. I thought uh, very good and uh, kept the match together, and then. In some ways, kind of reined in the Steiners, which sounds kind of weird to say, but I think in this case with this match, it was true. But this match sort of has a weird, uh, some weird reviews. Like, I mean, uh, Scott Keefe gives it two and three quarter stars, which is, I think, way off. Like, he wouldn't even consider this a good match. And I'm going to throw out my uh, Heart Foundation comparison again. I know the Nasties versus the Heart Foundation from WrestleMania 7. Uh, let me look up and see what he gives that because, I mean, that's a, uh, I think, a, a good match that I'd probably give around three stars. But I can't, I guess, really see watching these two matches back to back and thinking they were equal. That's something I don't really understand. Yeah, I mean, this is something we were talking about uh, is that you see it occasionally. It's kind of like a, a weird. You call yeah, he it a- gives it the same exact star rating. So I, I don't quite get that. So, so what match was that again, Chad? Heart Foundation? The Nasty Boys versus the Heart Foundation from WrestleMania 7 when the Nasties won the belt. See, that's, ins- that's insane to think that, that match is as good as this match. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we see that occasionally. I don't know if you want to get into it, but it's kind of like... Uh, I often think, like, if this... If that match, the Steiner Brothers uh, Nasties match, was on a WF show from around this time, it, people would talk about it like an all-time classic. I'm sh- I'm positive of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't get the. Uh, I mean, I don't see how this is too far off structured like the Hart Foundation or um, I'm sorry, Brett Owen versus the Steiner Brothers. I mean, in that match, the uh, the Hearts or brothers are able to bust out a lot of neat offense and. 
it takes on a structure within that match, and I think that's a great match too. Uh, but uh, this seemed like the same type of match to me, and this went 15 minutes, 16 minutes almost. So with, I don't I mean, quite get it. With, with with Scott Keith, a lot of the time, uh, I think that his his reviewing style is basically like. Oh, the nasty boys! I don't like the nasty boys. So this is matches, you know, can't ever be that good type thing. He's got like a yeah. precon, like he always has a preconception of a guy. It's like you know, one man gang, dud every time. It's like that's basically the way Scott Keith did a lot of his reviews. Um, I do, I don't think that he really takes apart matches properly. If you read what he says, like he he often comes in with it, you know. So you'll see a lot of Brett matches get very high matches very high marks as a as a baseline minimum you know and at any ma- nasties match will get you know bad rating as a baseline minimum just one of those things he's a, he's um he takes the guys into account first and foremost does that make right. sense yeah i mean i mean i can only think of two other nasty boys matches i would have uh with this one and that's the 1994 series they'll have yeah, I mean, I, I don't like the I don't like the nasty boys that much, but this was a really good match. So, um, Tony's with the Freebirds and Little Richard. Uh, the upshot is: Has anybody seen Robert Gibson? <laughs> um, and now, wearing a werewolf mask, JYD walks out, and he'll be taking on Moondog Rex. And um, in one of the lines of the night, we get. Um, his parents had nine months, and the best name they could come up with is Junkyard. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Dog don't have a very good imagination, do they? Said poorly dangerously on commentary. <laughs> um, um, I, is there any point in talking about this match? Well, I just said one thing um, real quick. is Junkyard Dog, you know, at this time in 1990, he was only 38 years old. I keep thinking if this guy would have kept himself in shape, he would have been like a made man as far as kind of like a crusher or a mad dog with Sean that didn't really have to do a lot and were over with the fans. But I mean, he just kind of, he let himself go bad by this point in time, you know, weight wise. And I guess he had personal issues, but I mean, he still was some type of, you know, I don't, not an attraction, but he had a name, you know, and he had his gimmick and he was known if he just would have kept himself in shape, he could have, he could have been a guy that, you know, kind of one of those, at least upper mid card baby faces that you brought in and, and pop the crowd. Yeah. Um, I th- I think you're right. Like the problem with JYD is that he's completely useless. It's like, he can't do anything. I've, 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 I've talked about it before. It's weird that, um, Norman is still hanging around and, uh, him and the juicer are throwing out food. Um, I, I've just written here, uh, this is pathetic. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so the next match is uh, the Horseman, that's Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, taking on the World Tag Team Champions, Doom. Uh, am, I, am I right in thinking this is a heel versus heel match, Chad? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's based on the premise of heel versus heel, but as, we'll, uh, as we discussed the match, it wasn't really performed that way. Um... Right. Well, uh, what do you make of it? I uh, I like this match a good bit because I think it really puts uh, Doom over. Doom acts as the de facto baby faces in this match, and it's also a kind of interesting look at Flair and Arn as a team. 
I think they're so kind of intertwined with each other, both as being the two kind of cornerstone members of the Horsemen. But there's just not a lot of kind of signature tag team matches with them teaming up. And this is uh, probably one of the best. And uh, also before, real quickly, this was another pay-per-view that ended with the uh, tag title, U.S. title, and world titles the last three matches. So WCW has been very committed in 1990 and having that progression with their cards. But uh, but I really like this match. I thought this was one of the better looks at uh, Butch Reed. And uh, Flair was pretty resourceful in a tag team role, uh, which was very fun to see. He seemed to be uh, better working as a tag worker here than really I could remember, except on a few occasions. And uh, they basically did a face in peril uh, sequence on Ron Simmons, and they were really good at kind of working him over. And every time he looked like he'd get a hot tag, uh, they would kind of pull at him or trip him or something to that regard. And then uh, he wasn't able to get the hot tag. Of course, he does get the hot tag, and Butch Reed does his uh, great shoulder block off the top, which was a great uh, two count. And the match after the hot tag is made really kind of breaks down into a brawl structure. And uh, it ends out in a double count out, which is kind of a cheap finish. But uh, this was a very good match overall, in my opinion. Solomon? Yeah, I agree. I graded it just below the Steiner's, um, uh, Steiner's uh, Nasty Boys tag match. Um, of course, you know, I've always liked Hill versus Hill matches. Um, and you know, of course, Reed and Simmons Reed does his, you know, nice, nice press slams. I think I'm uh, Flair and Arn. And then you had a great kind of brawling exchange with Reed and Flair with the chops by Flair and, you know, Reed doing his, you know, stand up boxing. And then you had, um, uh, you know, nice power slam by Simmons. Arn had a, a pretty good looking suplex too. So yeah, I mean, I liked it. Double count out result. Um, that didn't bother me really. So I think it, when you have like power wrestlers like uh, Doom was versus kind of like the KG veterans that are more technical, it makes for a good contrast. So yeah, I like the match. Um, I thought that um, I even liked the spot with uh, Teddy Long slapping Flair and you know how the announcers put that over. So um, yeah, I gave it like three and three quarter stars. I, I got the same note actually. Teddy Long slapping a flare and then Flair's stunned face was a was a highlight of this match. Um, I thought they told a really uh, compelling story. Um, Paul Lee was pretty good on commentary, bringing up the fact that uh, Flair um, was a tag title winner on three occasions in the late seventies, and they were putting over this idea that is it is the Horsemen were kind of tricking Doom that that Flair is actually a much better tag wrestler than he's given credit for. Um, and that played into the way that they worked this match with uh, the Horsemen being like the consummate veterans. They were too wily for doom time and again. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was a really neat dynamic in this match. And uh, R nailed his DDT at one point. There were some awesome big power moves flying around. Yeah, really good. Um, so I've, I'd say about three and a half on this, Chad. Um, a touch, uh, touch higher. I, I don't know if uh, when I watched this uh, the first time watching the footage, it was about three and three quarter stars, and it was about equal with that on this rewatch. So I'm probably right around there. Now Melsa said three stars, which is a little bit harsh. 
Yeah, that does seem uh, pretty low for him because this seems like a match that he would uh, enjoy quite a bit. Let me... Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised by that. And Keller on this one, he was higher. He went three and three-fours too. So me and Keller are pretty uh, aligned on this show overall so far. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to... He just says it was disappointing. Basically, any match with a flair on a card that is less than four stars is disappointing. Um, this was good, but not great. Terribly weak-looking finish. Um, what does he expect them to do, though? I mean, yeah, that, seems, that seems like really high praise to expect four stars every time out. I mean, even if you're talking about flair. Like, and I, th- I think that may be a talking point that's kind of going away, where even like the top workers now that are very like reverend, like a Daniel Bryan. I mean, nobody is saying every Daniel Bryan match he's had on pay-per-view this year is four stars and above. I mean, it's, I think that may be uh, something that as, as I, I guess as the years have went by, it's not, people are not, you know, scared enough to say, well, uh, this match of my personal favorite or a person that thinks the greatest wrestler of all time was was good but not great, and that's not necessarily a detriment on them. No, I, 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 I agree with that, but I, I also disagree with Meltzer's rating. Three stars, is too, it wasn't that bad. It was actually... Yeah, that was pretty stingy. I, I don't really understand what he expects to happen on the finish. Like, obviously, Flair's not going to get pinned. Uh, do me a word. Arn and Flair aren't going to become the new world champion. So, like, a double count out is the is a logical way out of this match, right? Didn't but yeah, didn't, I mean they they could have pinned Arn, but um, yeah, I think double count. It, it, I mean, in the way they brawled, it wasn't just one of those cheap. You know, they they do a couple of strikes and then they run to the back. It was a pretty heated brawl. Is not Arn still the TV champ as well? Uh, yes, he is. Right, so I mean, they they have an interest in not to not to not make Arn look too weak as well. So, right. all right, well let's let's move on. Um, and, and an interesting match now, where the big boys play favorite Lex Luger, taking on PWO favorite Stan Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Solomon, what did you make of this match? Well, I mean, I thought it was a, a okay match. Um, I know they're. Uh, Hanson did a promo before the match with the tobacco coming out of his mouth and stuff. And then as far as the, the match goes, the crowd was pretty hot for Lex. So, you know, whatever his detractors may point out, I mean, the crowd was into him at that at this point in time. Um, you know, there was a nice, you know, snap suplex by Hanson, uh, you know, nice bulldog by Hanson. And then, um, you know, one thing about Luger that I've never liked, though, that I will say I've never liked his punches um, for a big guy. I, I was really hoping that, you know, after listening to a couple of the telecasts, and I, I liked Luger at the time, you know, when I was watching back in 89, 88, I was just hoping that I would see a little bit more. But, I mean, he, he was all right. He's a good power guy. I just don't like his striking. Um, but, yeah, then Spivey came down, gave a cowbell to Hanson. Um, and Hanson, of course, missed Luger. And they, you know, they did a finish where Hanson really, he won clean. So, I mean, mm. I, it really put him over. Um, even though he attempted the cowbell, um, he missed and um, got the win. So I thought it was thought it was cool that they put Hanson over like that pretty clean, considering um, you know you have your uh, second biggest single star Lex Luger. So I thought it was okay match. I give it two and three quarter stars. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty harsh, Solomon. <laughs> but I, I, before we before I move on to you, Chad, I, I want to ask you. Um, 
So if if you think Luger's got weak strikes, and I'm I'm not disagreeing, um, do you agree that his clothesline is pretty good? That he's got a pretty good running clothesline? Yeah, it's good. I mean, right now, it doesn't stand out to me like, oh, well, he has an awesome clothesline. But, I mean, I have no problem with this clothesline. And I actually like Luger. So the fact that I don't like his strikes is just that part of his game that I've never liked. But uh, I like his power moves. I think he brings a lot of uh, um, presence to the ring, to his matches. Um, And I don't have a problem with, with, you know, people touting Luger as he should have been the world champion as opposed to Sting. It's just my problem with that was that by the time, uh, you know, 1990 Great American Bash comes around, they had already flip-flopped Luger a couple times too many, and he had already lost out on a couple chances to win the title. And I remember at that time I was thinking, well, you know, this guy's kind of already choked his chances away, so it kind of put a dim on him. But I would have liked to see him as kind of the Hill world champion around that time. I think that was a perfect time to do that around 90, 89. Yeah, and that's I, just my one criticism of him is the strikes. But I mean, you you got that about almost anybody. Uh, you're gonna have to pick out one part of their game that you don't like. Yeah, and I think we've uh, we kind of talked that point uh, to death. But I, I I would have also liked to have seen him as the as a as the heel world champ uh, early '90, late '89. That was the right time to pull the trigger on Luger, I think. But they they never did. Right. Um, Chad, any uh, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, this was a fairly quick match, uh, sub 10 minute match. And it's uh, one thing about Hanson, like I've never really, I guess this is the first time we kind of commented on one of his matches. And while watching this match, I realized that he's a really tough guy to kind of do our deep analysis, kind of analytical comments on part that we usually do <laughs> because I mean, it's, it's really just like a punch kick brawl strike, uh, style. And well, that, that's, I mean, I, I think he has some depth. He, 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 there are some things that Hansen does a lot, which is um, he uh, he jump starts the he jump starts matches. So you, right. he cuts out the shine sequence. Does that a lot. He does it in Japan. He did it here. So Lugo essentially gets no shine. Uh, Hansen came out guns blazing, and that's a, I'd say that's a typical Stan Hansen trait where he doesn't give the baby face a chance to get a shine sequence which one puts him over as a complete uh, badass, obviously, but two, it automatically tells a story of the babyface fighting against the odds here because he's been jumped. Um, and uh, so I, I quite like that dynamic in this because it kind of made Luger sympathetic. That, that's just my take, though. Yeah, I mean, you do... Uh, it, I think this match did do well in making Luger look like more of an underdog babyface than you might imagine because Luger, you know, is a well put together, uh, you know, big guy that was a lineman at football. So he's, he's, you know, not a small guy and uh, Hanson bum rushing him at the beginning did make Luger kind of overcoming the odds and get some uh, babyface heat for him. Uh, I quite like the finish, too, that Solomon alluded to, where uh, this is a big win for Hanson and uh, really pushes him over as a, a big, should have been a big mainstay for the foreseeable WCW future. So I, I like this match. I thought it was a good kind of first match in the feud uh, to kind of pick things up towards their match that they'll have at Starcade. 
I, I actually, we, I, I've got a feeling I'm, I'm going to be a ridiculously high vote on this match because um, not only did I like that early jump start finish that Hansen does, which is so brutal, but um, he uh, they told a really compelling little story in there as well. With um, uh, Hansen was going for the lariat, and Jim Ross kept on saying, you know, saying, "Oh, it's the left arm, it's the left arm," and uh, then Luger got an amazing payback spot hitting his own lariat. Um, I thought that, like, considering this was a sub-10-minute match, they actually did quite a lot of decent storytelling in it. So uh, my rating, on reflection, may be super high here. I went three and three quarters, which is um, at, which is significantly higher than uh, Meltzer, who went two and a half. Yeah, and I've seen uh, reviews. Like, I think Scott Keefe gave this one, like, a quarter, uh, one and three quarters, which is extremely low keller gave three stars i'd probably be uh uh probably in the three to three and a quarter range something around there i thought it was a good match and like i said shouldn't have been uh to me this was a satisfying match for this part in the card yeah so as far as hansen goes i thought that was a perfect way to get him over leading in the starcade clean clean one of the cleanest finishes we've seen in a while chad uh yeah, certainly for a heel and to win a title. I mean, you don't get, uh, I mean, I guess Wrestle War uh, 89 when Flair beat Steamboat. Uh, I know he got a big pop, but hypothetically he was the heel. And that match, uh, that was a little bit cleaner than this. But uh, on the spectrum of heel championship victories, this is pretty clean. Um, I think it was Bill Watts who was saying that he he was a firm believer that clean um, heel should have clean wins. Um, where do you stand on that? Because uh, other people say that you know uh, heel shouldn't like. I, I remember my buddy, uh, our buddy Pete, saying before that he um, one of his big criticisms of Triple H is that the pedigree was too protect the the pedigree was too protect, protected as a finisher. Um, and that uh, basically Triple H got too many clean wins in main event matches with the pedigree. Um, where do you stand on that yourself, John? Um, I, I think you can build to uh, to it where heels get clean victories. And I'm not, I'd, I would say I'm not opposed really to heels getting uh, fairly clean to uh, legitimately clean victories over big name talent, uh, because I think you can work a style, you know, that Hanson worked here is kind of a bruiser. I mean, not really a baby face style. I mean, he worked a bullying style here, mm. uh, and he barely cheated. I mean, there's a little bit with the cowbell, but not, not a ton. So I think you can kind of work around that and still be seen as resourceful and still kind of build up the baby face. I think the, uh, criticism like with triple h that you could gander is that he for some parts of his run would kind of completely stunt the baby face and make the baby face look foolish right solomon where do you stand on that uh issue well, i think it? um yeah if you uh build your hill up with some clean wins i don't have a problem with it especially if your your eventual plan is to feed him to your you know your number one baby face in a big payoff I know that Watts used to do that kind of with the Superdome shows with JYD as the conquering baby face. So I don't have a problem with it. Okay. All right. Um, I, I'm not sure. Like, the thing is, is that I like to, I'd like to think that I always like 
all through my fandom, I was always secretly wishing for my, you know, darling heels to have clean wins. But I, I guess I've seen them win with the foot on the ropes or cheapness so often now that I'm basically programmed to expect it. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, it, I, I guess, I guess they may have changed. I, do they still do that in modern WE? I, I don't. I think they do it a lot less, right? But like in in the eighties, in eighty WF, for example, heels never win clean, ever, ever, ever. I mean, yeah, I mean, like uh, last night, for instance, uh, Damian Sandow, who's a heel, he won a uh, match over Dolph Ziggler to become the number one contender for um, for the Intercontinental title, and that was, I mean, that was for their secondary belt, and that was a fairly competitive match that he won clean as a whistle. No, no tights, no, no foot on the ropes. Nothing. Yeah, he hit his, he hit his finisher and pinned him. I mean, Ziggler's getting kind of buried right now, but uh, Ziggler is someone that was the world champion six months ago. So. You see, to me, like knowing Sando's character and being programmed in eighty style booking <laughs> or eighties Vince style booking, that seems really weird to me that they <laughs> that they just put him over clean. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you'd never see. Any like any notable heel I can think of would always have some cheapness, right? Manager right. interference or okay. Let, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, it's um, the main event now. Sting taking on Sid, um, and he was announced by Gary Michael Capetta as um, being from anywhere he darn well pleases, which uh, was fairly entertaining. Um, what's what's the story here? Because this this Black Scorpion crap is still going on but Sid is also Sid and the Horsemen are also sort of involved um any insight on this Chad um I mean (laughs) there's really not much rhyme or reason to it Sid was just kind of presented as the uh number one contender uh I think I mean from a logistical standpoint backstage they didn't want to go back to flair real quick and they were building up the uh, Black Scorpion thing, which they didn't really have an end game inside. Even by this time, they didn't know who the Black Scorpion was going to be. And uh, so they used Sid kind of as a uh, placeholder until Starcade when they were going to do the big reveal. Now, can I just say, from a kayfabe point of view, this makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> right? Ole Anderson went absolutely... Do you remember how all, the, all of this started, Chad? Sid wanted a um, Sting wanted a shot at Ric Flair's world title, and oh, and the Horsemen freaked, and they were like, "There's only one world champion in this organization, and it's Ric Flair. How yeah. dare you want the world title, right?" You're, yeah, they had a uh, they had a little uh, interfaction bickering. Um, right, but now Rick Ric Flair's just all right with Sid wanting to be world champ. Makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, if you're Sting, you must be thinking, hold on a second, what, Flair's all right with this, but he wasn't all right with me wanting to be, well, it's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. So, little uh, continuity problem there with the, with the booking here. <laughs> I, I guess Ole is gone now, right? He's not on screen anymore? Uh, only as the voice of the Black Scorpion, but right. that's, that's, you know, behind scenes. Okay, well, Solomon, what did you make of this match? Well, I mean, I've I've always liked Sting. I mean, I, I know the promos don't really cut it, but um, I liked his athletic ability. One thing I loved about this match, I mean, I'm not saying I love the match as a whole because I didn't, but 
I loved uh, Sting running down the ramp and doing his, you know, leap over the ropes on the sit. I thought that was awesome. Um, and so, you know, uh, it was just what you would expect with Sid Vicious. I think Sid, Sid was all right. He carried his weight well, but it really wasn't. I mean, it just, it, when I was watching this match, I'm thinking to myself, this is not really a world title material match. I can't, it was just hard to fathom it as a, this is for the world title. Um, you know, Sid has nice power moves and steam with, you know, awesome drop kick and uh, the leaping ability. He has those good high flying moves, but I just, um, I don't know how, uh, it's hard to say because I don't see him being that sympathetic figure. I know fans love him, but I just, it's, it's hard for me to relate to him. And when I'm watching a match and where I would a Ricky Steamboat or Ricky Morton, or even I've never been a Hulk Hogan mark, but how those fans related to Hogan. And, um, so there was just a lot lacking with this match. I mean, it was an okay match considering, you know, he's wrestling Sid, Sid Vicious. And then of course you have the end where you have the whole, uh, you know, Barry, I think it was Barry Windham, right. Coming down, uh, and, he didn't look anything like him. Barry Windham. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't. I, 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 well, I, I watched the ending about five times. I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys did, because it was like, oh, there's, there's Sting. Oh, it, no, it's a fake Sting. And I've just written in my notes, jumping Jeff Farmer. <laughs> um, but then Jim, yeah, Ross, he... Jim Ross says, oh, that's Barry Windham on commentary. But he looks nothing like, if if Jim Ross hadn't said, I would, I wouldn't have known that was Barry Windham. Because he doesn't look like him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, you don't it just exactly that. Only because Jim Ross says that that makes you think that. But other than that, you're not gonna identify him without Jim Ross saying that. That's Barry Windham, you know. And it's like you know, it was in you know, the whole angle, stupid. And then that finish, you know, you have the I guess for what they were trying to accomplish, I guess it achieved their goal, which is you know. Uh, continuing the angle in the starcade, and but to me it was really just a bullcrap angle, um, and the the match itself was okay. I mean, they both you know as much as people talk bad about Sid, he does have impressive power moves, but he's not a guy that I picture you know challenging for the world title. And you're going to see a world title caliber match. I think Sting can hold up his end of the bargain, but I don't think Sid Vicious can. And even with Sting, there's something lacking there. I don't know how to put my finger on it, but. There just seems to be to yeah, me. I, I I agree with you. I don't. I st- I still think something hasn't clicked with him, and it and it won't do until I reckon. I, in fact, I reckon I I'm gonna I'm gonna go on record to, and saying that Sting only actually clicked with Vader. That's the only time where he's a. That's the only time that I can think of where he's a world world class performer. Um, and in that one match with Cactus Jack in that same year, because um, I can't think of any other time where. Everything like Sting really, really cuts it as a as a main eventer. Um, do you disagree with that, Chad, or or do you more or less agree? <laughs> um, I would say from a consistent standpoint, that's probably the best series to point to. I mean, I mean, uh, when he does the crow angle, he portrays himself as a top star, but he's obviously not in ring there, so. Um, we should we should explain exactly what happens uh, to anyone who hasn't seen this. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't. But you know, um, it, w- w- basically, I mean, um, Sid wins the match, right? He pins Sting, but it's not the real Sting; it's a fake Sting. But Sid is announced 
Gary Michael Capetta says, and new world heavyweight champion, Sid. And then Sting runs out and pins in the confusion and pins Sid. And then Gary Michael Capetta announces and still world heavyweight champion, which is confusing as hell. Um, because, I mean, what, what, what happened? What happened here? Like, did the ref just change his mind? Did Sid, um, like, because in a real sport, if, once a ref makes a decision, that's it. It was announced, and then in like the next breath, it was undone. This is terrible. It's, it seems to me traditionally it would have been a hold up the title situation until you know the commission or whatever it was looked into it. But in this case, you're right; they just went from one decision to the next without really explaining it. What did you think, Chad? Um, I mean, not, uh, first for the match. I mean, the match is not uh, very good. And we get a really dumb moment right at the start where Sting turns his back to Sid and yells to the crowd. Uh, this was after the bell had rung, and then he gets attacked by Sid. And it's kind of like, well, yep, of course he did. Uh, so, and, and the other thing that I found odd about this match was how much Sting kind of controlled the early going here. Uh, they were running pretty short on time, so this did not go very long either. I think like around 10 minutes, the match, and... Sting really controlled the uh, early portion of it. Once Sid takes over, he doesn't do really anything of note except for a decent uh, power slam. He does a uh, nerve hold and not a lot of very impressive-looking offense. Sting uh, then misses the Stinger splash, but he is able to come back to top rope crossbody for one count. And then we get the the schmage finish that you just described. So, yeah, so... uh, a fake sting gets pinned by Sid. You have the pyro and the balloons. And then I guess from a kayfabe sense, the other sting ran out and he had a rope tied around his arm or around his hand or wrist. And uh, I guess you could say that Randy Anderson saw that, knew that he'd been duped. And then he did immediately kind of call for the bell. And then uh, gets a stinger splash and an inside cradle to win the match. But uh, they were running really short on time because it's it's about 20, 30 seconds after that they sign off. So you get no uh, celebration whatsoever, and you kind of you're kind of left as a viewer exasperated on what actually happened. But I mean, they they even when Sid wins the world title, they even blow a couple of fireworks. So yeah, you have some pyro and the uh, Halloween balloons come down. What the f- like? <laughs> see, 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 seriously, they, they they that suggests that all of this was planned. <laughs> that, that this is the way it was meant to go down. That's like, what what what, what are they doing? Like, that's just because the the crowd obviously pops because it's a new world champion, right? Even well, I think the crowd is in somewhat in shock. I mean, it was a shocking kind of ending, and and not the crowd did not obviously know. You don't get a sense that the crowd realizes that that was Wyndham. No, I, I don't think I don't I wouldn't have known if I was there. Yeah, so uh, I I mean I think probably the best thing they could have done if they'd have had more time and since I mean if you wasn't going to do a mystery of what exactly happened because Ross spills the beans that it, you know, that looks like Barry Wendell or something. So he has like eagle eye vision. <laughs> uh, he can tell something that no one else can. But if you're, if you're going to do that, then 
I don't really know how you can save it uh, besides bringing him like out there at the end. So it's like certain that you had two stings if you're already going to run the suspense. Otherwise, I wouldn't have mentioned his name at all and just kind of left it like ambiguous. Then, you know, on the TV, you could have had a little segment with uh, Randy Anderson or whatever where he explains, uh, you know, what he saw and how he, uh, I guess, conducted the reasoning that it wasn't the real stain and restarted the match. I, I think this is one of the worst finishes we've seen because I just think it's so stupid. Like, it, it's all right having, like, a confusing you know, confusing finish. But to go to the extent of blowing the fireworks and stuff, it's like, what What are you doing? It's just... It's yeah, just... I kind of thought that was strange, especially for a hill to win the title, and then you're going to have the balloons pop and all that. God, I, really, really, uh, really bad. Um, and uh, just while we're on this, the subject of this finish, um, this was going to be our uh, question for the listeners this week, right? Has any wrestler ever had more fakes fake versions of him than sting because um there's the fake sting here and uh there's the jumping jeff farmer fake sting are there any other fake stings that's that's at least twice he's been faked um so that's right that's one question and i guess kevin nash kevin nash fakes him too kevin nash fakes him as well yeah, that's uh, Bash at the Beach 97. Kevin Nash comes out dressed as Sting. So there's three different fake versions of Sting out there. And God knows, they've probably done it at least once in TNA without without knowing. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, so has anybody had more fake versions of them than uh, Sting? And I'm telling, you, I'm telling you right now, I'm ruling out Doink. Doink doesn't count, okay? Because that was part of his gimmick, <laughs> um, to have the multiple Doinks. Um, but anybody else, uh, any, um, and, and a sub question, if you don't fancy that question, um, my other question is kind of related. Um, has anybody been tricked in wrestling more than sting? Cause, um, th- I mean, th- we'll see this on, in, you know, on the next 20 years worth of shows, uh, Chad, that, um, sting basically gets tricked every other week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stings, stings pretty gullible. He's the most trickable, most gullible wrestler. Um, so th- th- that's 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 the question for the for for the listeners this week. Okay. Well, all in all, despite the what were the uh, ratings for that? Oh and yeah. Me, uh, before that too, let me correct. I'm watching, rewatching the finish now. Uh, this is the third time I watched it. It is uh, it is Nick Patrick is the referee, not Randy Anderson. I blame uh, Brad on that because he said Randy Anderson when we were talking about it. He had it in my head, but it's uh, it's Nick Patrick. Randy, don't call me Nick Patrick yeah. Anderson. Yeah, Randy, don't call me Nick Patrick Anderson. <laughs> um, Meltzer went a star and a half. Okay, do you want to guess what Keller gave this mess? No. Three stars. I. Oh yeah, that's high. Does he say why? Uh, let me pull that up. I was flabbergasted by that, but uh, I, I think, think I think he thought it was kind of a clever finish. Um, no explanation was given to fans live to miss the Sting Sting face off, and it was not at all obvious that Sting got pinned was not the real Sting. Uh, I mean, it, he basically gives a description of the match, so he doesn't really say why, and then he just slaps on three stars at the end. See, I think that when you're rate, when 
I mean, we're watching a pay-per-view match. I I always review, and th- th- this may be a difference between uh, Keller and I, or you know, other people may have a different view. But when I'm watching this stuff, I review what what goes out on air, not what the crowd sees. I think we have to view it like a TV show, right? I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, so I'm not sure about that line that the, the crowd didn't know. So what? We're, we're the ones, we're the, we're the audience too, type thing, you know. Um, okay. Uh, all in all, I thought this was a pretty decent show, apart from the bad main event. Um, it had an unusually, an unusually large amount of pretty good matches on it. Hansen Luger, Flair and Arn versus Doom, the Steiners match. Um, I quite liked the uh, the Terry Taylor match. That's four pretty good matches and then the opener which was really really good so i think weirdly like even though it doesn't feel like it when you when you watch it halloween havoc may be one of the this particular show maybe one of the best ones we've done um uh, i wouldn't go that far just because while this did have a lot of good stuff on it also had quite a bit of bad uh, including a main event that was not up to standards so that uh, kind of hurts it a good bit for me. Uh, I did post the question on PWO, which one we thought was the best pay-per-view of 1990. Mm. And uh, I, I can see reasoning for this one, but but it really does kind of uh, hurt. Like that middle hour or so between the uh, Terry Taylor match and the Steiners match, where you have like the Brad Armstrong match, the, the Master Blasters match, which is really only for uh, Cornette's commentary, and then that awful Renegade Warriors versus Freebirds oh, yeah. match. And now, now, so, huh? now, now, you, now you mention it. It's, it's just like, I guess, it, how, how many pay-per-views of this era have like five good matches on them? Yeah, it's a wildly inconsistent show, I'll say that. Like the high end is very good. And the uh, low end's pretty poor. And on a, uh, if you're so inclined to watch it in kind of clip version or take the highlights, uh, it was a show where going in, I thought might be a contender for like one of the top three shows we've done. But that middle hour, kind of once you trim the fat, uh, it makes the show look a lot better in retrospect. Like the two hour clip version of the show does have the Freebirds match. But it also has every other good match on it, too, and doesn't have, like, the Master Blasters, the JYD match, or the Brad Armstrong match on it. I, I think that's been a theme for Nighty Night in general. Too much fat on these shows. Too too many matches, too many shitty matches um, on the on the cards. Because yeah. if, if, this, if this card was just, like, six ma- those six matches in two hours... I think you. I think people would hold it up with a, maybe with a better main event. Maybe with a better main event. But. Yeah, I think the main event hurts the timing on this show because it doesn't feel like any match really got shortchanged. But the main event, kind of start to finish, is only like eighteen minutes or so. Like in that's entrances, the ending promo was being everything. So it, it's it's a pretty brief. Uh, you know, I don't think I want to see Sting and Sid go twenty minutes. Uh, but th- but that kind of hurts, th- I think, the show overall a little bit. Where if you could have put on a kind of NWA classic style main event, 
and then trimmed a couple of the other matches, the show would have been, uh, or cut a couple matches and then trim like the Freebirds match, the show would have been very good. Solomon, any final thoughts on the Halloween Havoc 90 overall? Yeah, I think that um, what Chad said is true. If you get the commercial version, I mean, you get some clipping, but then you don't have the bad matches like, you know, the Blasters, JYD. But overall, I thought it was especially for 1990 because uh, this is around the time that I kind of cut out of wrestling for a bit. Um, I think it's uh, overall uh, a pretty decent show. I liked it better than Bash 90. So um, I have to watch Russell War and all that stuff just to compare it to those. But um, I like the show, especially the tag matches. Yeah. Okay. Well, shall we do? Let's do our end of show awards then. Um, so, match of the night. I think I, I think there's a front runner here, but there's yeah, it could be one of several. Solomon, your match of the night. Uh, Steiner's nasties. Chad. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's difficult not to go with them, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's that's obviously the match of the night. Come to think of it. Um, Surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good match uh, for, for the nasty boys there. Um, MVP, I think that's a more interesting question. Solomon, I'm going Scott Steiner. Liked his uh, awesome moves, and then I thought he played the victim pretty well. Um, and then his promo, uh, he sounded a lot like Road Warrior Hawk. His promo wasn't; it was okay. It was, it was fired up. Um, so I'm giving Scott Steiner the award. Chad, I've got a feeling I know what you're going to do. I am going to go with Bobby Eaton. Yes, uh, for of this course. One, I thought uh, I kind of echoed what I said earlier, where just uh, for this being kind of the curtain call for the Midnights, he was fabulous in that match. Yeah, no, I I thought you were going to do that, Chad. Um, and in light of the fact that this is the last time we see him, I'm going to have to go with Jim Cornette because um, he was awesome on this show. Yeah. I, th- I think he... As as much as a manager can steal a show, I think he did kind like he was awesome during that um, during that Southern Boys match. As bad as that match was, he was t- very entertaining on the on the commentary, and then um, he was fun during d- during the match as well. So <laughs> uh, Jim Cornette for me, give it because Eaton's got more chances to get MVP down the line. But this is right. it. For, this is it for Corny. I'm very sad to see him go. I'll kind of be interested to see if I ever give, or if either one of us give uh, Eaton an MVP after this, though. I don't I don't really know if he will. I don't think he will, unless I'm um, mis- uh, misremembering something. Well, he, he is a member of the Dangerous Alliance. He is, but uh, as, well, that's down the road, but I don't. I can't think right offhand of any spectacular performances he gave there. And... Uh... Not time now for the Billy Graham Award for the worst worst worker on the show, Solomon. Well, I'm gonna I'm not gonna pick one of the obvious choices like JYD or Rex or the Master Blasters just because I would try to pick somebody from like one of the matches that was deemed with some you know some importance. So I'm gonna go with Tommy Rich. Study added nothing to the tag match, otherwise pretty good tag match. And then you know it's hot tag he came in. The crowd was wasn't too pretty flat on that and you know never liked the Thez press as a finisher so I'm, I'm going with Tommy Rich um Chad I think I'm actually going to go with Sting Ooh. here um and I, I think 
it's partly because he fumbled his promo. Uh, I mean, the magic trick, I don't know if anybody could have made that work, but he was, I mean, I, I kind of would have liked to have seen, I know it's, in a certain regard, it's like, how much can you do? But that would have been nice if somewhere backstage, Sting would have just kind of put his foot down because anybody with half a uh, half a brain should have known that was ridiculous. And then the main event, I mean, there was just something kind of missing there. And his, his offense wasn't very inspired. Uh, he didn't seem... It just seemed like they were kind of running through the motions to get to the finish. I don't know, again, if... It was because they were running short on time or what, but uh, but I kind of don't uh, don't think so because Sid does a nerve hold. He still gets that in in the middle of the match, and I, I just think it it was fairly obvious at this show that it just was not working out for now, Sting. This may be controversial, okay? And I remember on DVDR, which I, I don't really post on DVDR very often, but there was a thread um, called Carryable. Who is carryable, okay? And I went in there and I said, Sting. Sting, with the right opponent, can be carried to a good match. But if he's the guy who has to be the worker in the match, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flop, okay? This is exhibit A, in my case, for that very argument. Um, and I know there'll be people, even listening to this, who will be upset with that point of view. But I've seen, to date, Chad, no evidence to suggest the contrary. Um, no, the only, yeah, the only uh, match I can think of that you might could argue against that is a match we'll get to way later, but it's uh, Sting versus the Shark, John Tenta at Stark no, but, 94. But come on, John Tenta's a good worker. Not in 94, though. Oh, I mean, he, he no, had a good match well, in years. As, we, as we'll see, John Tenta was on in 94. I know it's a long way down the line, but it's one of my little pet things that he was really motivated during that little <laughs> during that little stretch. He came in and he was honestly he has several good matches in that stretch. Um, but you know, let's let's see when we get to it in 2016. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a while. <laughs> but I w- I would agree. I mean, that's that's just the only. I mean, I can't think of any other. I mean, some might. I, I really can't think of any other uh, occasions where. He flat out kind of carried a good match and out of someone. That, that can be a third question for the listeners. I'll give you three questions for the listeners this week. Has Sting ever carried anyone? I'd argue never. Um, I mean, Solomon, off the top of your head, can you think of a single Sting carry job where he's carried somebody else? Not off the top of my head. I can't. No. And, and, nope. this, and this is a guy with, what, a 30, 30, 30-year career at this point? So, um, my uh, worst worker of the match has to go, though, to Chris Youngblood, who was absolutely atrocious. Yeah, he was bad. So, uh, in fact, either, <laughs> either either of the Youngbloods, but I'm, I, noticed that, I noticed that Chris Youngblood did the hip toss, so I'm going. He was, <laughs> he was really bad. Um, all right. This might, be, this might be it. I think this is it for them, so I don't know if you want to give a big tribute. What to the Youngbloods? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my tribute is that Chris Youngblood got worst worker on the show for me on on a card with Master Blaster Blade on it. <laughs> yeah, and JYD too. And JYD, yeah. So we we well, we, we reach the end, um, which leaves only time now for the 
questions for the listeners. The question for the listener, right? Um, and uh, last week that was, um, can you think of any ways to make the black scorpion angle work? Because uh, we we talked about that a little bit. And uh, well, Chad, what do we get? People we actually a, answered it. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of uh, couple of opinions here. Uh, Peter said that uh, potential realistic choices for the scorpion in my mind. Uh, and he prefaced this by saying realistic means the warrior is out. That leaves only one reasonable person from Sting's past that remotely fits the clues, and that's Eddie Gilbert. Considering he was a mid-card jobber to the stars guy for WCW before leaving, that would probably be an immediate anticlimactic moment, especially as they continue to drag this out into Starcade. That said, an earlier reveal with Gilbert being given the chance to cut loose on the mic could have saved this, as Eddie could sell any storyline. However, the other big negative, in addition to Eddie's prior placement on the card, is that Gilbert being thrusted into the main event role would probably rub a lot of other people in the company the wrong way, and it was a matter of when, not if, Eddie got into a disagreement with evil Jim Hurd, which I love that Peter's using that <laughs> moniker now, and uh, wanted out again. So the other option is to pretend all those clues never happened, which would flares exactly what they did. Other people that he theoretically available, uh, or would be soon available, are Terry Funk, could have pulled it off, but you run the risk of rehashing the main event run with more of the same. The Great Muda, uh, Ricky Steamboat, which is his pet pick, and one whose shot value would have been through the roof. I've never quite believed the idea of fans wouldn't want to boo Ricky, which is kind of a PWO talking point. Mm. And uh, he says someone forgot to tell the 89 WCW audience that, which is pretty clever and true. And then Dusty Rhodes, who uh, came back fairly soon after the uh, big scorpion reveal but he says no way on earth would dusty had agreed to turn heel at this point so that's uh, five choices there you know everybody in wrestling always says that ricky steamboat can't work heel right um but yet the fans did boo him uh, in 1989 as we've seen and in some of those matches they booed him loudly right um think of how awesome it would be right imagine steamboat was the black scorpion and he plays an angle where he's bitter at the fans for booing him. Can you imagine? Like, he could get the footage up. This was my big moment. And you booed me. And he turns on the fan. I think you could be one of the greatest heel turns ever. Yeah, it, 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 this really feels like a moment. I know, like, with some reveals in wrestling, I mean, I guess, like, the higher power is probably the closest kind of comparison. And that they really felt like there was a lot of kind of crazy you know ted dibiase or jake the snake or whatever some kind of crazy out there uh reasons here i mean with this question we got some quite frankly realistic choices in addition to the stan hansen choice that uh, we talked about earlier so we we have options that they could have went with yeah and i will say i, I know people on pwo and yourself chad uh, have been throwing Ed, Eddie Gilbert around. I can guarantee you that if it was Eddie Gilbert, the fans in 1990 would have been disappointed because they wouldn't have given a shit. I'm, I'm just, I'm just being realistic. There. I agree with that. Yeah, there's the uh, narrative that if it was him, he'd have had to have brought in kind of some muscle also with him. Like he'd have been more of a mouthpiece. 
Um, I just read your uh, grimace here. <laughs> um, Clash 12. Clash 12. Um, Sting beats the Black Scorpion, removes his mask, and it's Ivan Koloff or somebody else who is legit. That just made me laugh. Sorry. Uh, Ivan Koloff was mentioned as a possibility here. Um, but I think he was using Ivan Koloff as like a, a swerve, and the actual Black Scorpion is, Ed, is Eddie Gilbert. Um, I, I like... Was it you who suggested Vader being the, being the guy? Uh... That was something that Keller talked about. Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was kind of... in. Uh, in the same narrative of like uh, Gilbert as the kind of ringleader and him leading the muscle of Vader. Um, and now I have to read this one out. This is uh, by a chap called Old School Dude from the Kayfabe Memories Board, who is having some problems signing up for uh, PWO, as I'm as as I've heard several people say in the past. Um, all I'll say is if you can't sign up to a message board in 2013 you know <laughs> no uh, um if you if you do go there uh, i think uh, our buddy lost has put something uh, a new mechanism you can email him right uh, yes chad so um t- check that out if you've been if you're one of these long-time listeners who's never been able to get on the board because i do understand that it's a difficult process uh, but anyway old school dude says um if the Black Scorpion angle was to get over, you'd almost have to book it backwards from the end to the beginning. The payoff would have to support the booking. So if um, if you don't have Warrior coming in, and it's ob- it's obvious that he, and it's obvious that it wasn't going to be uh, uh, Warrior, then the build-up has to remain on par with whoever would be the Scorpion. So the alternatives could be Eddie Gilbert, Bill Watts, Bill Watts, um, or even Jerry Lawler, as Lawler and the Blade Runners worked a short program when they first started in Memphis. Lawler could work against Sting, and it would add an additional uh, element to the angle if Lawler continued to appear in Memphis while the angle played out in WCW. Um, But if you went with uh, Gilbert or Watts, um, they would likely be best used as a manager for a monster heel. Gilbert due to his size, and Watts due to his age. Uh, The other option he gives is Vader. Um, So you could either kind of play up... um, uh, his Memphis start and have it be Lawler or his Mid-South start with the, some combination of Gilbert and Watts. What do you think of that idea of Lawler being the, being the Black Scorpion? Yeah, that would have been, uh, that'd have been cool. And, uh, I mean, Lawler kind of did, uh, I guess, a variation of that with invading ECW in 1997. Uh, I think you could have played off some of the uh, mannerisms that he did in that angle if he would have kind of, I guess, invaded WCW here. Uh, that that's another choice that may have been available. Probably could have been if they were willing to go that way. What's uh, Solomon? What's your favorite kind of suggestion that you, you you've heard so far? Well, I like the Lawler one. I think that that's one that would have worked because you got a guy who's good on the mic and could work. And yeah, uh, and I think we're talking about Steen. Uh, if he's worth a good worker, then you got a good match. And I think Jerry Lawler fit the bill perfectly. And and also for the type of heel that Lawler was when he, when he played a heel, I think it would have fit his personality perfectly. Like that's the sort of oh shit. yeah, that, that, that's the he sort was kind of, of a hyper like heel. Right. I mean, that's exactly you know, the sort of shit he would pull. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, he did. I mean, I don't know. I have the match on you know YouTube that Snooker versus Lawler about eighty five, eighty six, where Lawler. There's not too much footage of that angle, but I guess Lawler played a, kind of a, a dick heel, you know. Kind of in mm. the Piper mold. Right. 
Chan, um, what was your favourite suggestion? Uh, the, well, I like the Lawler one. Um, I also like the... Uh, I, I do like... I mean, with the clues, if I feel bad kind of ignoring the clues, so I do kind of like the uh, combination of Gilbert and somebody else. And then I also like the Hanson one that... Uh, that um, Keller laid out. But we also had a couple more. Uh, one was our uh, good friend, Evil Jim Hurd, who lays out the exact angle as uh, we might see comes through <laughs> where it's Flair. Now, who is that? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I have my suspicions, but I have uh, honestly not been able to lock down a... Uh, true identity on that one. That's our own personal black scorpion is evil Jim Hurd. <laughs> and then the other one, I wanted to mention this and I actually forgot um, Matt over at the uh, Bigelow 34 board. He, uh, he chimed in too. And he says, uh, he actually kind of sticks by the flare reveal too. He says in, uh, but in terms about the black scorpion, the actual storyline isn't in that bad. The problem with the angle comes down to the anticlimactic reveal. I actually like the idea you threw out of it being used to introduce Vader as he hadn't really done much in WCW prior. Having said that, I'm not even opposed to it being Flair if it was done better. You have Steam beat Flair, Great American Bash as it occurred, and either form a subsequent rematch or even there you have uh, WCW management decide Flair has had enough title shots. From there you have Steam feud with other heels on the r- roster whilst the Scorpion mind games start. Then you have Flair and Anderson turn face for their feud with Doom. They were going to be cheered anyway. Keep Flair and Sting mostly separate yet crossing paths on a few occasions with Flair seeming humble and defeat. Then you eventually have Sting accept the match against Scorpion for Starcade wanting to put an end to the mind games. Then you can either do the reveal that it was Flair all along maneuvering his way back to the title shot either at Starcade itself or have him go over there and reveal afterwards. It's kind of like the man reveal as the higher power after working with Austin for a bit, which I always enjoyed. Steam dropped it back to him early in 1991 anyway on some random house show, so this way that changes a much bigger deal. Well, folks, I've heard all of your ideas, um, but part of the booker is going to return now. The clues were all there. Somebody from Sting's past... Okay, somebody under the mask, somebody who's still under contract with WCW. So, the big reveal should be, in my opinion, <laughs> Iron Sheik. Oh. <laughs> now, now, think of this. WrestleWar 89. Do you remember that three-minute match they had? <laughs> Iron Sheik wants revenge. He wants to break Sting's back and make, his, make him humble in revenge. Um, that's my suggestion. That, uh... That you could make make another big main event run for the for Shiki Baby. <laughs> <laughs> could have main evented uh, Starcade and SummerSlam in the same year if he'd have done that. Hey, Stranger Things. Or, or See, I'm surprised he didn't do that. Str- stranger <laughs> Things have happened. The Zed Gangster. I, I, I don't event. know. <laughs> I don't know. If stranger Things have happened than that. Shit, <laughs> <laughs> he main evented SummerSlam '91. So '91, yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, well, uh, we've we've reached the end. The the question for the listeners this week, there were actually three, and they're all Sting-based. Has there anybody ever been faked 
has there anybody ever been faked more than Sting? Has there any? Has there ever been anybody who's been tricked more than Sting? And has Sting ever carried anybody that you can think of? And I'm not accepting uh, John Tenter as an answer. <laughs> or I'll just put it out too. I'm not accepting a Larry Sabisco in 1991 Power Hour as an answer either. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Solomon, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Um, oh yeah, it was fun, guys. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and I, I hope you're still listening during this period that where you'd clearly tapped out as a, a fan. I hope uh, we're helping you rediscover. 1990 uh, yet again oh yeah listen i caught up to all of them and uh, I, i'm even watching uh, not watching but listening to the uh titans the wwf stuff you guys are doing from 79 yes, 80 so beast, that's pretty the cool show. <laughs> well chad said chad said it not me i i, I uh <laughs> um all right but here, here on the mothership we're signing off so uh until next time so long for now Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.